Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America in the belly of the beast in Washington, D.C. Good morning. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for joining us out there, all you rumblers. And on 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the D.C. Metro. We're also in Kansas City at 1140 AM, 102.9 FM, and 104.7 FM on that radio dial. I am the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan, along with guest co-host, the atomic MAGA, Durag conservative Malik Abdul. This is the show that dares to go there. This is Fault Lines. Good morning, good morning. We've got a big show today. Is it hump day? It is hump day. It is hump day. Wednesday. And... Maybe that, and that's it's a little clearer part. outside, for, clearer for people who don't know. In in this, in the, but especially in D.C. on yesterday, it was like ghostly. Yes. Like I took a picture. Like you, when I was walking down the street, aside from the lights, like of yes. the the so foggy, you could not see. It was, it was like that a, type a of, horror movie. Yeah, it was like made for th- Michael Jackson's yes, thriller. Yes, it totally was. I was waiting to hear like a, a wolf howl. Like the the uh, and I won't do that on air. <laughs> I howling? won't do the howling on air. But yes, that's what it felt it like. It was thriller. Spooky. It was definitely like thriller. So today it was like okay, just a little bit brisk. But man, was it spooky! And you know the time is changing this weekend. So let me see. Is We're it fall back? back? Fall back, spring forward. Yes, sir. Yeah, fall so, back. So do we get a, so what do we, do we get an hour or we lose an we're hour? We're supposed to be, ga- quote unquote, gaining an hour. So that means we're falling it, back. it gets so your body, dark. Well, I think it, well, so it'll get dark earlier. So and, it gets dark know? earlier and then it gets light earlier. At a better, so it'll be brighter when you get up right. to come to so fall what, lines. Right. That's, Not okay. as spooky. So it gets dark earlier, but it also gets light earlier. Earlier, yeah. Okay. So everything is a little bit earlier. Although I'm a fan of no more time change. Maybe so. I don't even know why we do that. We're not that. a farming society. Wasn't this based on the, the farmer's almanac yes. or something? Yes. It's, it's Now this, it's time to actually Th- This end. is time to move. It makes no sense. I think Nancy Pelosi was there when they did it. <laughs> so I think they approved, they approved that. I, I really, I think Congress moved on that. I yeah. think they approved it a, like a year ago. It's a ago. congressional action. Yeah it, it, yeah, it It was some type of bill to actually do that. It doesn't take a lot of legwork. Just Oh, engineering says it's ending in 2023. So oh, wow. next See? year. Next year we'll be through with it. And we wow. none of us will miss it. No. And I hope it stays this time. Whatever... Whatever the, they decide it's on. The spring forward. Oh, you yeah, like this? Yeah, because I like the idea of um, it's getting, it's lighter earlier. No, if if that makes sense. If it's light. Oh, okay. Well, so I when I get up, it, so it's dark now. Right. But when I get, if I get up at like five o'clock or six o'clock, it'll be lighter outside. Is that what this season we're going into now? No, that'll be fall back. Oh, gee, I don't know. No, wait, if you get up. We're going to have to think about yeah, this. Yeah, Somebody yeah, Somebody in Rumble is going to tell us, look, we've got it wrong. But either way, I'm happy to see it go. I know that they yes. cast it. I didn't know when it was coming into effect. So 2023. Next year. 2023. So I wonder which one they're locking on. The spring forward know. time or the fall back time. But well, I, I lived and worked and I used to anchor in Arizona. And Arizona is one of the few places that already doesn't observe daylight saving. So. Oh, wow. 
I was always confused. <laughs> <laughs> I always con- I'm, I'm always confused anyway, let's be honest. But with the time, at least I knew how to keep track of time. In Arizona, right. I was like, wait, what time is it in New York? Right? Am I two hours? <laughs> three? Four? Don't know. Well, the good thing is that they're getting rid of it. Yes. So that'll Woo-hoo. be the end of that. So yeah, I wonder if they'll just lock us in in the spring. We'll see. Uh, 2023. There we go. All right. Let's head over to some headlines. Now, I'm surprised SCOTUS didn't have to, <laughs> to, have to approve it. Uh, but speaking of SCOTUS, the U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts has temporarily blocked a House committee from accessing former President Donald Trump's tax returns on Tuesday, according to a new court order. Quote, It is ordered that the mandate of the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, case number 21-5289, is hereby stayed pending further court order of the undersigned or of the court. That language is court Legalese, I swear. swear. (laughs) It's a racket, I tell you. It's a racket. The language... Yes. It, it's like learning pig And Latin. you know, because we borrowed from the British and, and their system. Yeah, so it, it with, reads. I should have gotten rid of with this language, gotten rid of this language along with the powdered wigs. Now, the House Committee on Ways and Means, they're going to have to file a response to this order application by November 10. So they have about a week to uh, protest this. Then over at Twitter, new owner Elon Musk has confirmed the rumors on Tuesday, announcing that verified those blue checkers like me, the verified blue check accounts are going to be charged $8 a month to retain the blue checkmark badges indicating authenticity. He said on a tweet, Twitter's current lords and peasants system for who has or doesn't have a blue check mark is bull crap. He tweeted. Then he said, power to the people. Blue for $8 per month. Adding that the price would be adjusted by country according to their nation's purchasing power parity, or known in the economics world as PPP. And Mr. Musk also listed several other features that subscribers to the blue service would get, including. He says priority uh, in replies. I don't know what that means, priority in replies. Priority in mentions and searches, which he says is essential to defeat spam and scam. Subscribers will also get the ability to post long video and long audio and that they'd only see half as many ads as before and would gain the ability to bypass paywalls with publishers willing, he says, willing to work with us. So I guess part of the perk for the $8 is certain publishers that I don't know, force you to subscribe to see more, mm-hmm. I guess. Like a, a Wall Street Journal yeah, or something. Yeah, maybe. Watch it be something that nobody reads. Yeah, <laughs> if they provide a service. Right. But like, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. I don't know. I'm, I'm willing to give it a shot. But he has to... Just pay your $8. Pay my $8. Fine, I'll give it a shot, see what it looks like, see how it works. Uh, but unshadow ban me. Let's start Elon, there. Let's start with the unshadow bans. Free the bird, as you said. Free it. Unshadow ban. 
Then several large foreign Twitter investors have received new access to confidential information about the social network, possibly including its users' personal data, mine and yours, personal data, financial statistics as well. As part of Elon Musk's deal on the acquisition of Twitter, now the report, uh, the priority was reportedly given to Binance, Saudi Arabian, and Qatari funds, which have invested at least $250 million or more in the platform. Now, the move comes after the U.S. Treasury Department reportedly started examining whether it had a legal ground to conduct a probe into Elon's ties to foreign governments and investors. Hmm. Then over to the Hill, sort of, David DePape, the man suspected in the attack on Mr. Paul Pelosi, was arraigned on Tuesday afternoon in San Francisco where he pled not guilty to charges of attempted murder, among others. DePape's public defender, Adam Lipson, spoke in a press conference on Tuesday following DePape's court hearing, announcing that DePape had waived his right to a hearing within 10 days. Quote, DePape is currently being held without bail. Friday is the setting of the preliminary hearing, Mr. Lipson says. The bail hearing will probably be set in conjunction with the preliminary hearing at some later date. Then over to international news, Russia will be resuming its participation in the Black Sea Grain Export Agreement after receiving written guarantees from the Ukrainian side not to use humanitarian corridors and ports involved in the grain deal for military operations against Russia, says Russia's MOD. Quote, After the Ukrainian terrorist attack against ships of the Black Sea Fleet and civilian vessels involved in ensuring the security of the grain corridor, the Russian Federation suspended the implementation of the agreement on the export of agricultural products from Ukrainian ports i.e. the Black Sea Initiative. The MOD said in a statement, they continued, thanks to the participation of the UN and assistance from Turkey, it was possible to obtain the necessary written guarantees from Ukraine on the non-use of humanitarian, humanitarian corridor and Ukrainian ports listed in the interest of exporting agricultural products or conducting military operations against the Russian Federation. These were sent to the Joint Coordination Center on November 1, 2022. And over in Israel, their elections committee has confirmed Wednesday after processing 62% of the ballots that former Prime Minister, who's under indictment, by the way, the former PM, Bibi Benjamin Netanyahu, his Likud party, is leading the way in parliamentary elections. The vote count Wednesday morning showed that Likud became the largest seat winner in the Knesset with 33 seats so far, while incumbent Prime Minister Yair Lapid's Yesh Atid party came in second with about 25 seats. The Religious Zionism Party ranked third with 14 seats. The ultra-Orthodox Religious Political Party, Shas, and Defense Minister Benny Gantz's National Unity Party received 12 seats apiece. United Torah, Judaism, Religious Conservative Party, and Finance Minister Avigdor Lieberman's Yisrael 
Beit Zinu, translated to Israel, our home, their party, they secured just six seats each. So it's looking like Bibi is the comeback kid in Israel. Now, speaking of comebacks, in the first public statement since Brazilian presidential elections, the runoffs held on Sunday, incumbent president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, has refused to either explicitly accept nor reject the victory of his rival, former president Lula da Silva. Quote, I will continue respecting our constitution, adding that he would authorize the safe transition of power to Lula, who narrowly, very narrowly, eked out the victory on Sunday. He said, it's an honor to be the leader of millions of Brazilians who, like myself, believe in economic freedom, religious freedom, free speech, honesty, and the green and yellow colors of our national flag. Now, however, Bolsonaro refused to call Lula, the candidate from the left-wing Workers' Party, the victor in this election. So no phone call, very similar to what happened when Biden won and Trump did kind of pouted his way out all the way, you know, until Inauguration Day, never shaking hands or making contact. And Mr. Bolsonaro said his right-wing supporters have the right to demonstrate, but that they must be peaceful and not resort to what he called to illegal methods of the left. He didn't want a J6. <laughs> That's what it is sounds what like. I, I think. Britain's government has reportedly been testing emergency plans to tackle possible week-long power cuts as the energy crisis continues to prompt fears of supply shortages throughout the winter. Ministers have reportedly drawn up some documents which state that in, quote, a reasonable worst-case scenario, a reasonable one, Malik. What is a, a reasonable, reasonable worst-case worst case scenario? What I, is that? <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> they say all sectors, such as transport, food, and water supply, the communications and energy could be severely disrupted for up to a week at a time. So according to the official sensitive plans cited by British media outlets, should be should there be lengthy blackouts britain's ministers so lengthy meaning longer than a week i mean a week is a long time a lot like, without water without electricity i i don't know but they're saying if there are lengthy lengthy blackouts the ministers will prioritize delivering food and water and providing shelter to the young and the old as well as those with caring responsibilities. So I guess if you if you take care of, you know, somebody that's infirmed. So in line with the confidential plan codenamed Program Yaro, a series of exercises have purportedly been carried out recently involving government departments and councils across the country. Then one in five commissioners or one out of the five commissioners of the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, the U.S. federal agency responsible for regulating us, not just Sputnik, I mean radio, television, satellite, and cable communications has touched down in Taiwan for an official visit. In a statement put out Wednesday, the American Institute in Taiwan, the U.S.'s de facto embassy in Taiwan announced 
that FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr had arrived on the island to discuss a range of issues, including telecommunications and cybersecurity, with the visit lasting from November 2 to November 4. Quote, Given my position at the FCC, I look forward in particular to deepening the collaboration with Taiwan and sharing views on network resiliency, cyber, and telecom issues that are vital to our shared security interests, Mr. Carr said in an interview with U.S. media. Then this day in history, back in 1917, the Balfour Declaration proclaims support for a Jewish state in Palestine. In 1930, the coronation of Rastafari Mokanin as Hail Selassie I, 225th Emperor of the Ethiopian Solomonic Dynasty. Back in 1949, the Netherlands recognizes its former colony, Indonesia, as a sovereign state. Then back in 1966, the Cuban Adjustment Act comes into force, allowing 123,000 Cubans the opportunity to apply for permanent residence in the United States. And that'll do it for your headlines this hump day, Wednesday, November 2nd. You're listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Rastafari Maconan. Maconan, how did you say yeah. that? <laughs> I wonder, I need to actually go and... Rastafari. We need to ask our producer. I wonder, is this... Because, I mean, it's Rastafari. So I wonder, is that... Rastafarian? Yeah. If that's the root word? Is is Lathe... Lathe is an encyclopedia. Producer Lathe. Is that what he's saying? Is it... Is is this where Rastafarian comes from? Yeah. So, we've got a packed show. We're going to... We're going to take a quick break... We'll give you the answer about Rastafarian later. And, and, this and I'm literally getting the education from my is producer it, in real time. Is that, that the Ethiopians opened their, there was some famine or something, and the Ethiopians apparently opened their lands to the Rastafarians or something. I probably got it just a little wrong, but I was getting, I was, I was getting fed the information real time. So look, these yeah. guys, they know everything. Uh, yeah. Well, let's, let's go ahead and take a break. Uh, and then we'll talk about this once we get schooled by producer Lath about where the term Rastafarian comes from. I don't know he was so passionate about this stuff. All right, you're listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a quick break and uh, have our little open mic right after this. Sit tight. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I'm Manila Chan along with Malik Abdul. Uh, Jamal Thomas is out in Brazil doing a, a bikini workshop, I think. <laughs> oh, getting what? Oh wait, no, I'm I'm getting the update. He's there for the election. Ah, uh, there is he. I I, I didn't know. <laughs> okay, election. He's there. Correction. Yes. Correction. Yes, he is there for the elections. We're not going to say that he's been on the beach. Even though it's probably close. I'm, I'm willing but to bet. That's a perk of the assignment. The guy is working hard. I'm he sure. Is. I'm sure. But there there are always perks when you get sent out. Back in the day when I used to travel a lot, there were always perks. Sometimes yeah. I would stay over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because they, they don't care necessarily when you come back oftentimes, right? Because you're already there and you're like, okay, let me stay another day or two wherever, right? It, like, Question. Did you 
hear about the um, comments Stacey Abrams made, I think it was during the debate with Brian Kemp, where she, where, where is this? Because I was looking at it online. Um, yeah, it was actually in the debate and Brian Kemp, Governor Kemp was talking about the support that he gets from law enforcement and sheriffs around the country. And apparently, um, Stacey Abrams, in response to him, um, said something uh, that he basically is getting remarks from the good old boys who want to take black people off the street. She said that. She absolutely said it. But you know what? And, and in fact, I'm going to get the, oh, I'll give you the word. I'll get the actual quote. Oh. Stacey Abrams, um, I'm not a member of the good old boys club. So, no, I don't have 107 sheriffs who want to be able to take black people off the streets who want to be able to go without accountability. Okay. So this was her response um, to Governor Kemp, who was talking about the support that he has from law enforcement. The reason that I even bring that up is that, for one, it speaks to why Stacey Abrams isn't faring as well this time around as she did in 2018, she was extremely popular. Brian Kemp beat her by right. less than one percentage point. So, oh, so this was like a Brazil thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, she that was, close. oh, it was absolutely that close. And <clears throat> since then, we know that she's been claiming that Brian Kemp, along with Raffersberger, who's the secretary of Georgia, secretary of state, colluded in a sense to basically cost her the election. So she's been yelling stolen elections. Well, that, I remember that part. Yeah, since 2018. And most recently, an appeals court down in Georgia threw out her election, her lawsuit that she filed against the state of Georgia, where she was alleging some political shenanigans that cost her the election, things around, um, you know, cleaning voter rolls and all that type of thing. The oh, courts threw it out. So she's she's saying, OK, so let me get this straight. The Democrats say when Trump points out election irregularities, mm -hmm. that's a conspiracy theory, QAnon stuff. Stacey Abrams Abrams does it. And even and not totally just says legit. it. Not just says it. She files a lawsuit. An actual lawsuit. Right. Yeah. And the courts threw it out. Right. But the as far as the public goes, the mainstream media goes, it's Republican. Totally, totally legit. Yeah. Her it's complaint Republicans. is legit. Yeah. yeah. It must be racism, mm -hmm. sexism. Mm -hmm. I don't I've heard I don't know what they call it, weightism. Yeah, well, who knows? Heavy, I mean, if we, we, we come up with everything right. now. An ism for everything. But it's okay. So what's good for for the goose is not good for the gander Correct. in this case. And so it doesn't surprise me. But what Stacey Abrams did, and I was talking about why she's less popular this time around, is that she's really been unable to read the room. Her organization has gotten plenty of money. Mm -hmm. I can't think of the name of the fair fight or something. Her organization itself has gotten plenty of money. But... We're no longer in 2020. So there was a, during the Black Lives Matter. The electorate has changed a all little of bit. That. And now that we're seeing around the country that the issues that she was able to run, that Democrats were able to run on in 2020, which was anti-Trump. Right. You know, racism. Well, that's really what drove them. Right. Yes. It's it wasn't really that they were them. so in love with Joe Biden. It was just that they Or that they loved her. Or It, it was, was that, that Donald Trump made himself unlikable right. to the point that people said, you know what? I I like I may like him on pop. Yes, it wasn't because they were so in love with um, Joe Biden. But what Stacey Abrams is doing is what the Democratic Party does. This notion, um, and it's so unfortunate in minority communities 
this sense that we have to hate the police. And so that's what Stacey Abrams was tapping into, this um, hatred. And I just call it this hatred that we have for police publicly. And the reason that I say publicly is because, as we've talked about here and many other places, these politicians don't have a problem living in their gated communities with their with their security. Some some mm-hmm. of them, like Cori Bush, I, I believe they said she spent over a hundred thousand dollars over the past couple of years on security herself. But because wait a minute, Malik. She lived in her car. She was homeless before. So no. this is. All of them, and, and and I'm definitely for members of Congress protecting themselves, sure. but this is outside of congressional, what's provided by Congress. Mm. So you have many of them, not just those politicians, but you have people all around the country who travel with these, you know, law enforcement entourage, Wait, so like security like entourage. Paid, just paid private security through their right. pact? I don't know. I don't know the the mechanism, but the, my point and what I'm saying is that they because if you're like a they GS, may say one thing publicly. What, what is a congressperson like a GS fifteen pay scale, something like that? No, more or less. No, more than that. A con- I think the annual the con- the congressional salary for first I think it's like one eighty. So that's above SES and wow. Yeah, so I think that it's like 170, 180, something like that. Above SES, whatever. So yeah, these, so are, these are pay grades for yes. people that don't know. <laughs> yeah, so, a general, so it's like general schedule, and then there's a senior executive schedule. The senior executive schedule are those who are typically political appointees, yeah. heads of agencies. They make more than SESs? Yes. SESs, I think they only tap out of maybe around, I think now, maybe 160,000. Are kidding? Mm-hmm. This is on the low end because, so you know, there's Corey a scale. Bush paying for this kind of security? I don't know. It's got to be through her pact. It, it, it very well may be. It has to be. Yeah, it very well may be. But I mean, it's not I, just I Corey Bush. I these people are volunteering to yeah. hang out at AOC's house no, like a militia. No, no, no. But, it, but it's not just Corey Bush. It's all of these, the left. You know, if, he, if you listen to what they say around climate change, they're so concerned about climate change, but they have no problem flying on their jets. Private jet. Yep. Two states over. You know, so... This is more rules for thee, not, not for me. Right. And this is part of that hypocrisy. But it's really disgusting with <laughs> Stacey Abrams and many of those because in, and that's, you know, the point that I'm making. They're so anti-police publicly. Yes. Because it sells. Right. It gets but you, but you, But you live in secure communities. You have your own private security and many of these yeah. other things. And the you, rest of us don't. Right. So this is BS that you're doing out there. And it's really disgusting with law enforcement because you have communities who, um, you know, generations, kids who grow up in environments where they're being kind of indoctrinated. To hate. To hate police. To hate police. And, and, you know, that transcends only police. It becomes, you view it as an, a figure of authority. Law, yeah, yeah, rejecting authority. Rejecting all authority when mm-hmm. in real life, sorry, but there is a pecking order and there are rules. Right. Like it just... In order the, to have a society. You have to have rules. And these are the very same people who many, when um, talking about not just things like police brutality, but talking about like problems in the communities, they'll, they, they love to point at if, if a shooting happens. They talk about, well, how white people and racism that these white kids grow up in these communities where they're told, you know, indoctrinated to hate black people. And so they do all of those type of things when it comes to white people. But in instances where it reflects us and our community, they act as if these things can't impact. So our discussions around police can't impact a child's 
Perception. Perception yeah. of police. They see them as a threat. You go up or grow up in a community where they say, this is a threat to you. Right. That's Run what you're going to believe. Run away from this. Yeah. You see a blue uniform. And you're going to engage away. with them differently. They're hostile to you. Yeah. Yeah. What? what I didn't realize it was... I yeah, mean, I mean, I experienced I, I experienced it a little differently because in my community, I grew up, even though, you know, I grew up, as they say, in the projects, w- police officers were the norm. Our respect for law enforcement, it wasn't what it is now. I knew poli- we had police officers in my family. Community policing, right. So they were present. It's much different in areas, you know, other areas around the country. Well, I'll say this. I mean, I grew up in the hood, too. Uh, my neighborhood, in particular, of, of, of Los Angeles, is was so bad that for I'm sure it's because of you know political reasons they unincorporated my city from the actual part of the city. That's exactly why. That's why, right? Because yeah. the crime is so bad. We have literally the most unsolved murders in all of Los Angeles, where I'm from. So, and to this day, like it's unsolved because you know what? Like if you talk. Somebody's going to get you for talking. So, well, you know, I'm I'm still fascinated that you grew up in a largely his, what is it Hispanic, Hispanic, mostly Mexican, <laughs> Mexican, mostly Mexican, Mexican gang community, community. <laughs> unincorporated from Little Manila Chan. Yes. And and I'll tell you, but in the '80s, you know, as a kid in the '80s with under Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan, President Reagan came to my high school. This is before the community got really bad. He came to our high school. Well before I was in high school, long before, and this is the 80s, obviously, he was still sitting president. It was the high school I eventually grew up to go to won a, uh, dis- like a high school distinction of like academic distinction mm-hmm. or something. Fine. Fast forward like 15 years later and I'm in high school in the early 90s or mid, mid 90s. Totally, di- <laughs> totally different. Wow. And this is after the D.A.R.E. program was put in place, the war on drugs, we used to have police officers come to the school. They'd, you know, show mm-hmm. us squad cars and mm-hmm. even show kids guns. That. They're like racking guns. <laughs> I, I remember, remember all of this, right? We had an off. We had it was called um, officer friendly. We had some, yes, yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah it was I think called it was. officer friendly. And we had cops come classroom to classroom and just get us familiar with the cops, so we weren't afraid of them. Mm-hmm. Because previously, the communities were taught. Obviously, you know, you see the man in blue, you see a black and white. He's bad. Yeah. Well, that presence in schools now is threatening to the point that people want it's to a remove. Trigger. Yeah, they, they want to trigger, remove police officers. So there's there's a lot of uh, breakdown in that communication. But I will add this last thing before we take a break and go to our friend Ted Rawl, who we're going to talk to about a myriad of things. Uh, probably this too. <laughs> throw this in there at Ted. Um, but one of the the breakdowns in communication between police and the communities is that while I have friends and family in law enforcement as well. One of the breakdowns is that when police started getting the opportunity to buy military equipment and then train as mm-hmm. if they're like a Navy SEAL, that caused a huge rift in the psyche right. of community policing versus I'm, you know, officer commando. And, you know, that came out of Joe Biden's 1994 crime bill, the militarization Bingo. of police forces. Bingo. So, yeah. With that, we'll leave that right there. Uh, we see the Rumble chat laughing about the <laughs> D.A.R.E. program. Because, you know what? Let's end the war on drugs. It just didn't, it didn't work. We've been doing it for 40 they call years. It a CIA plot. It doesn't work. <laughs> it didn't work. All right. These are two kids that came out of the D.A.R.E. program. It, it didn't work. <laughs> I'm 
tell you. All right, let's leave that right there. Take a quick break. We'll be back on the other side of this with our friend Ted Rawl to talk about just, we're going to shake the magic eight ball and talk about everything that's happening in society. Uh, you're listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. We'll be right back. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I am Manila Chan, joined with Malik Abdul. We'll be bringing in our friend Ted Rawl. Uh, you all know him. He's a political cartoonist and syndicated columnist. You can follow Ted on Twitter at, surprise, surprise, Ted Rawl, R-A-L-L, Ted Rawl. You can check out his articles and cartoons at rawl.com. That's R-A-L-L.com. Ted Rawl, good morning. We're shaking the eight ball, the magic eight ball. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> good morning, Manila. Myriad of topics to, to get to. I don't know if you want to weigh in because I know you were on hold. You probably heard us... Uh, talking about the D.A.R.E. program and the war on drugs. Uh, we weren't supposed to talk about this with you, but I, I want your thoughts. Back in the late 1900s... <laughs> <laughs> Which is true. It's an accurate statement. Back in the late 1900s, President Reagan implemented this D.A.R.E. program. He had Nancy go around, you know, reading books, as well as saying, say no to drugs. How has that panned out? <laughs> I mean, the easiest question I've ever been asked in an interview... <laughs> Uh, I mean, I think we all know what happened, right? I mean, I was in college uh, during the Reagan years and then sort of immediately after college. Um, nothing happened. Well, of course, maybe if the Reagan administration hadn't been importing, you know, cocaine to fund the Contras, uh, it might have helped. Uh, you know, they, they were uh, the government was uh, often a big part of the problem uh, that they were allegedly trying to fight. But uh, there was, uh, I think that, that there was sort of a multiple problems here. I mean, there was an issue of uh, motivation. There was an issue of, uh, of, of the, you know, just widespread uh, lack of credibility of the government. And there's just the fact that, you know, <laughs> drugs are really fun and very attractive <laughs> to a lot of people. Uh, you know, I mean, it's like, uh, you, it's, it's just like uh, prohibition in the 1920s, it, it's just, it made the government look foolish. Um, you know, I, I think we may have, sworn, this may be controversial. I'm totally for decriminalization, but there's something a little off-putting to see you know, marijuana stores, you know, a few blocks away from my house, you know, next to the deli. It, it, that maybe have, may have gone a little bit, uh, you know, as usual in American politics, uh, swung to the opposite extreme, but uh, certainly these things should not have been criminalized. Um, and the the entire approach was wrongheaded. I mean, if you really wanted to fight drugs, you'd want to fight the reasons people use drugs, which, you know, basically entertainment, alienation, depression. Oh, you know, I mean, hey, Kurt Cobain got addicted to uh, to heroin because he had a chronic stomach pain and uh, no one could give him a medication that worked. So there's a lot of lot of it's very complicated yeah definitely a, a very a mixed bag if you will and i don't mean the drugs um but this whole conversation about the war on drugs decriminalization the the crime crime act the crime oh, bill the 1994 crime bill under, and the militarization of the police force under yeah. now president biden. Uh, under now president biden and that is something you know i i, I think even the dare program i sort of remember it um but I think that there are people who have good intentions. Um, the problem is that when we're talking about government, 
the outcomes, you know, the, the planning of all these things. I even think that the 94 crime bill, in a way, the 90 crime, 94 crime bill was responding to an issue of crime. And there was drugs, gangs, crimes, and communities. And so the government, as you can imagine, Big Brother, we tend to overcorrect. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that that's probably one of the things. But, Ted, we were talking about Elon Musk. And, mm-hmm. and Manila is feeling some type of way about this blue check mark. Anybody <laughs> paying this $8 for this uh, b- Twitter, is it Twitter? No, not Twitter blue, it's the Twitter the, the, check. The check mark, the verification. The actual uh, verification. Ted, did you see his tweet about this? I mean, we read this, we had it in headlines, and, and basically he literally made it a point to say this. Here, I'll just read it to you. It says, this is Elon's tweet about the, how he's pitching the $8 per month thing. He says, quote, Twitter's current lords and peasants system for who has or who doesn't have a blue check mark is bull expletive. Power to the people, blue, for $8 per month. Then he goes on in his salesman pitch and he says, you know, if you do your $8 a month, you're going to, if you subscribe to this, you're going to get priority replies, mentions, searches. And he says it's essential to defeat spam and scam. And then he says you'll also be able to post long video, long audio. And for certain uh, publishers who are going to be working with Twitter, you'll be able to bypass paywalls with this $8 a month. Uh, so wait a minute. So on the reply, on the priority replies, does that mean that your your reply like, your reply will be higher up right, rank in higher? the comment so section. So, like, if I reply to Hillary Clinton, will she? Because I'm a I'm a elite blue checker. Mm-hmm. I'm apparently um, a broke lord somehow. Well, well, because I don't have a lot of followers, I don't know how it works. But like, I think on Instagram, and this is just me thinking. And you, if you know Ted, then please jump in. I think on Instagram, because normally if I'm looking at comments on an an Instagram post, I see the blue checks higher up in the post itself. So I don't don't know know if it's that sort of thing when you're talking about priority on Twitter. But anyway, Ted, what do you make of all? Tell us what what do you think about this stuff. Well, first of all, I, I hate social media. I only do it because it's necessary in this uh, day in, in, you and me you know, in order to be connected to the world. Uh, but I, I mean, it's it's really devastated journalism, uh, yes. the the profit model of journalism in a huge way. I mean, you know, God, those publishers, you know, brought it upon themselves. Uh, and I also want to just say I'm not on I'm not against Elon Musk buying Twitter. I don't think it makes any difference what you know whether a billionaire or a group of millionaires or a hedge fund or a, you know a bunch of uh, you know bland uh, Silicon Valley bros uh, you know own Twitter. Uh, it makes no difference. Um, but uh, I and and you know in terms of the check mark, um, you know I've I've been on Twitter for years. I have I think about nine thousand followers. When the checkmark thing happened, I didn't even bother to apply for it when it was free because I thought, well, you know, people either know I'm Ted Rawl or they don't. Uh, you know, I've been on for so year, so many years. I would think that, you know, it's just the the years of of activity on the account kind of show uh, that is my blue checkmark. Um, I am always against any kind of attempt to um, create two classes of communicators in any kind of structure, you know, I mean, it would be like having premium first class mail 
uh, as opposed mm. to regular first-class mail. Um, I don't like it. You know, one of Musk's promises was that he was going to, you know, deban Trump. Maybe he was going to take the the scare warnings off my Sputnik tweets. Uh, you know, that all those kind of things were going to go Shadow away. Man. Get rid of the yeah. You know, I know my 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 content is throttled down because of my politics and comes up lower in people's feeds. Uh, a lot of people have that experience. It, I was you know, he promised to get rid of all that. This is a move in the opposite direction of, you know, I mean, you could say a lot of people can afford $8 a month, and, and that's certainly true. Uh, but why should they have to? And there's also the fact that this is a guy who's worth $44 billion, supposedly. I mean, let's just say he did use, he did borrow $13 billion of the purchase price for this uh, in order to, and he saddled the company with its debt. So it's really an LBO. It's not an outright purchase. But you know, think about uh, the thing about this is he's so rich, he just bought it. And there's something weird about billionaires coming in as saviors, like, you know, Bezos at the Washington Post, and then raising rates. Um, you know, it's like, it, it's like, well, we, I need this to be profitable. No, you don't. You can run it as a vanity project the way that the owners of the New York Observer ran it for years, or, or the owners of the New Yorker magazine ran, ran it as a money-losing vanity project because it's fun and it's cool and it gives you influence. And that's, that should be enough, really. So, um, you know, the timing is weird right after the acquisition. Um, you know, the, it, it's sort of like, oh, you're firing all these people at Twitter who, I, you know, I don't care about that. I don't know any of them personally. But it's just like you're firing people. You borrowed a bunch of money. Now you're gonna you want to charge people, you know. So basically, you're telling everybody who doesn't want to spend money on this pro on this service that we may or may not like that you know we're we're going to be throttled even more. It's like it's just it's bad communications on his part. That's what I would tell him. I have nothing against Elon Musk at all. Yeah, me neither. I don't I don't love him. I don't hate him. I I do think he's a, a quite quite intelligent. Uh, we just Are got we a hearing? break. We just Are got a kidding? break. Uh, breaking news in our ear. Trump has just been allowed back on Twitter. Uh, he may be allowed soon. They said that they're confirming right that he may be allowed very okay. soon. Okay, well, we'll report right. it as well, it comes in. Well, we'll know while, uh, hopefully while you were uh, on the program talking about it. But And that was actually my my question to Ted. Do you think he's coming back? But I guess we'll hold off I, on that yeah. question. Let's, let's just wait a couple <laughs> minutes to see if it's coming back for sure because we've had you know, uh, other guests of the show, guests, yeah. Scott Ritter, for example, was banned, deplatformed, allowed to come back for like a hot minute, and then they deplatformed him again on Twitter a second time. Scott used his real name, and you know, so like you, Ted, I've I've got the the scare label. You know, I'm like labeled Russian propagandist or whatever. Um, I'm my you can't search for me, even if you follow me, you still can't find me. So, yeah, it, it's a very, yeah, he hasn't gotten rid of that. He said he was gonna, I don't believe he's the alpha or the omega of Twitter, uh, but I, I, I figure any changes that he makes can't be worse. So I'm not, I'm not griping about $8 a month, but let me tell you, $8 a month on Twitter, $12 a month on, on Hulu, $12, $12 $15 a month on family Netflix, all this stuff adds up and $8, I feel like we're the ones creating the content. Now we're paying, paying Elon to give him our content. 
I mean, isn't that kind of what it is, Ted? That's exactly what it is. I, I think about that all the time when I post to Facebook. Uh, you, you literally in those, you know, 54 page, uh, you know, two point font, uh, you know, agreements that you sign to be on these services. Uh, they, you know, they literally say that technically speaking, uh, anything you post there becomes their copyright. So, I mean, there's a world in which a Ted Rall cartoon, which is copyrighted by Ted Rall, uh, could arguably belong to Mark Zuckerberg. And, you know, I mean, I, I think people don't really even understand when they post to Instagram, they are technically, I mean, you know, Instagram, is, which is owned by Facebook, is not enforcing their copyright rights, but they could publish a best of Instagram book and use your images, uh, your, you know, that, and, and that they, pro they would have a very strong copyright case in court. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, no, it, it is gross. I agree with you, Miller. There's something about all the, you know, I don't really mind the a la carte thing, except for the cost of the internet itself and the cost of the devices that you spend. I mean, I, you know, I recently bought a $3,000 laptop. I own a $5,000 desktop. I spend $150 a month on, on just for, you know, in, to have Wi-Fi in my house. Um, and I don't think I'm that unusual. Uh, and then, you know, meanwhile, you know, Apple is, has more money than a lot of, a lot of countries, but yes. that's for real. Um, and, you know, we're, and so I wouldn't mind the nickel and diming if it didn't go with these, you know, if they were giving away the, the, the main, the hardware, you know, kind of like the model of the, of the computer printer, which is like one of the worst devices that's ever been designed. But, you know, the, the printer is like a hundred bucks, but, you know, you're paying $28 per, per cartridge, um, you know, but, but we're, we're paying both here. So that you know, I, I think there's going to be, I mean, I suppose there's space under, under free markets for someone to come up with a better way. Uh, and someone probably will, but in the meantime, we're all getting gouged. Elon literally said in a follow-up tweet to, I, I forget what famous person, um, because I also responded to him. I didn't get a reply, but, you know, I, I reminded him, I said that not all blue check people like myself, not all of us are celebrities or rich. And in fact, the overwhelming majority of serious journalists are not rich. We are not wealthy people. We do this kind of journalism because it's in our, you know, it's, it's, it's a burning thing in our gut, in our belly. Um, the, the Jim Acostas, you know, the million dollar contract people, they might not gripe about the $8, but someone like me, someone like Lee Fong, who I just recently retweeted, I don't know if you saw um, his, his investigative piece, Ted, about yeah. he, he broke the piece, he broke the story about uh, the Ministry of Truth, even though it's Brand? defunct before it really started, that, that the Ministry of Truth was already working with Twitter, with Twitter to not only censor, but literally curate what we see. So D, they have, he broke the news. He has DHS text messages as well as Microsoft text messages. He has leaks. I don't know if you saw this, but everything that people said, oh, you know, you guys are conspiracy theorists to think DHS is working with Silicon Valley to do X, Y, Z. Turns out it's true. Turns out it's true, Ted. We, Lee Fong broke the story. He's, you know, at The Intercept. He broke the story. And, and wh why wouldn't it be true? I mean, uh, right. all these companies worked in detail in, in the documents that Snowden revealed in 2013 show that all of these companies were working very closely with NSA uh, and, and CIA over the years. 
uh, and that these relationships were very close and you know mutually profitable uh, in in many cases, and uh, you know that they never busted up. I mean, there was sort of some noise. Uh, that companies like Apple, in particular, were going to be a little more privacy-based, but you, but many of them allowed, uh, you know, for example, AT and T invited NSA to uh, have a, their own switching room uh, at at a giant, um, at one of their giant substation facilities in San Francisco that controls all of their switches in in the Western United States. I mean, it, these connections are so tight. Uh, of course, they didn't go away. I mean, they're they're ongoing. And Manila, what was the story? What was that? That was something about, um, was it France? Rumble. Um, Rumble. The other right, thing right. was what? the Rumble thing. And the other topic we should hit on about the media, Ted, is that the Rumble founder um, posted on his Twitter feed uh, to say that fr- he outed France. He said that France tried to bully Rumble to deplatform all Russian media, which obviously includes Sputnik and RT to deplatform any Russian media. And the Rumble founder pushed back and said, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I'll just disengage France <laughs> from the feed so you guys just don't have to watch it then. <laughs> well, that's a, and that is, you know, and obviously that's the principled stand. And, uh, you know, I mean, the cynic in me could say, well, that's Rumble's brand now, right? Like people will think, um, you know, they're more independent. I remember, but that works. Uh, T-Mobile was one of the few telecoms that refused to co- to cooperate with NSA. And when the Snowden stuff broke, I remember thinking, you know, hey, note to self, uh, you know, when the next time it's next time my contract is up, switch to T-Mobile. Um, you know, Rumble is doing itself a lot of good in the in the in a world that you know where corporations are are at war with your with your ability to know and to control your you know and they want to control your narrative and they you know I mean. Obviously, I'm, I, I, you know, more people are watching RT and Sputnik, you know, under the bands than ever did before. Because, you know, when there's something, you know, when they're hiding something, you know, when the government is hiding something, you know, it makes everyone want to see it more. It's like the D.A.R.E. program that <laughs> had the opposite and inverse effect. Absolutely. And Ted, I wanted to ask you, um, since we have a few minutes, uh, to kind of switch to the midterms. Um, one of the things that I'm surprised well, I won't say that I'm surprised by I'm surprised that there isn't more conversation about what's happening out west, particularly in Nevada, between Adam Laxalt and the current senator, um, Catherine um, Cortez Masto. Oh, Masto, yes. Yeah, Masto. Laxalt has been leading in basically every poll for the past few weeks now, and there's not enough discussion about the possibility of Republicans picking up that seat, and let's you know. That's why I said that you know, or uh, Masto is the incumbent senator. She's running, and and to she was a, a product of Harry Reid, and I don't say that in the way that she doesn't. She didn't do anything in her own professional career. I think she may have been the state's insurance commissioner or something like that. So she's qualified definitely in her own right. But she looks. Right now, it looks as if she's getting ready to lose that seat for Democrats. This is one of the ones that Democrats really aren't talking about it, and many Republicans aren't either. What do you think about the possibility of Republicans picking up that seat in Harry Reid land? Yeah, the, Nevada was the you know famously the purple state that might be about to become uh, they could consider fully blue. Uh, Arizona is still sort mm-hmm. of considered purple. 
Um, and so, I mean, that's obviously some really interesting demographic changes there. And there's, you know, the, the big, ex, the classic explanation is due to uh, Latino immigration, but I think it's probably a more more complicated than that. It's probably a lot of former Southern Californians moving to um, uh, to those areas to to, uh, to find cheaper places to live. Uh, you know, former Democrats, people like that. But um, I think uh, I, I don't. You know, this I'm going to go out on a limb here. Uh, I would not have said this two months ago. I think I, I do think this, the Democrats are going to lose the Senate. Um, I, I think there's so many the momentum. You know, it's still kind of a long way. It's well over a week. Um, these things are tightening up all over, which you would expect. But you can just sort of feel the gravity run out from beneath the Democrats in races like, you know, Ohio. Oh, yeah. Jim Vance and Tim Ryan. Oh, God. Georgia. The There was the open mic moment between Schumer and Biden. Yes. Where Schumer confided that he thought you know, that he couldn't believe that the Democrats were probably going to go for, were probably going to lose and Walker was probably going to win down there. Um, so I think there's going to be, um, it's going to be pretty, it's going to be a rough, rough, uh, you know, night for the Democrats. Um, and you know what? I'm actually with you on that, Ted, because a couple, well, I, I think most people were because right around spring, the notion was that Republicans were going to have a red wave after Roe um, happened the Supreme Court decision in Roe. There was some momentum building up, and the dis- you know the idea was is that Democrats were on an upswing, and that people were really concerned about abortion. The numbers were looking good for women, but even if you look now, I remember reported on the show a couple of weeks ago how independent women have now shifted to the Republican column in this election cycle, and that is huge because those are the votes that both sides often try to get. But you mentioned a number of them, but the fact that Oz closed the gap in Pennsylvania, I don't know if we'll ultimately win that, but Oz closed the gap in Pennsylvania. There was a lot of discussion during the summer between um, talking about Ron Johnson out of Wisconsin, the current incumbent senator, Ron Johnson is going to win his race (laughs) in Wisconsin. But governorships all around the country. There are a couple of congressional races right now. Republicans only need four seats to win the House. So we only need four. And it is all but guaranteed that we'll win the four. But I'm with you on that one, Ted. I'm not feeling as as pessimistic as I was about our Senate chances simply because, as you said, the momentum is swinging in the Republican column. And because we have things like the economy and inflation and crime and a lot of the things that um, Democrats didn't expect uh, to be an issue as much in this election cycle as opposed to abortion and voter, you know, voting rights, those things aren't trending as much. So I agree. I think that the momentum is definitely in the Republicans' favor. And there's also these gubernatorial races uh, where you had strong, uh, you know, per, we thought strong candidates in Georgia with, a, with uh, you know, with uh, 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 Stacey uh, Abrams. Abrams. And, uh, you know, we thought that there was a strong candidate, uh, Whalen, in, um, in Ohio. Uh, but they're both, you know, they're going to get their, their their clocks cleaned. There's no question about that. Uh, and so it's a, uh, I think, you know, I think what's going underlying all this is that Democrats don't have a credible solution to the abortion issue, which was the one big thing they had. They, you know, they say vote for us, and we'll codify it. Uh, you know, we'll codify Roe v. Wade. It's like, well, first of all, you're just not going to be in a position to do that, even if we do vote for you. You're not going to have the 60 votes in the Senate. So 
it, you know, it's kind of like that. you won't eliminate the filibuster. <laughs> you're not going to do that either. Right. You're not going to do that. We all know that. And, uh, and you know, and then there's the, the harsh reality, which is that, uh, you know, Democrats tend to live in states, uh, Democratic voters, where abortion is going to remain legal. Yeah. So, you know, banned abortion is a theoretical construct, right? It's like, well, that's very sad for the 17-year-old high school girl in, in Texas, who's going to have trouble, but I don't know her personally, uh, you know, and, and I think, you know, in the end, I do know that in, I know inflation personally. Uh, and I think that's, that's, that's like in the end, that's it. Yeah. And one last thing, Ted, um, real briefly, did you see what happened with Arizona with these guys, quote unquote, protecting the, uh, the ballot boxes? They've got a restraining order against them now. They can't be holding guns and wearing militia gear around. Those boxes. <laughs> yeah, because that's a, uh, the court does declined to intervene when they actually did it on last week. They allowed it on yeah. last week. So, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty. Uh, well, I mean, you know, that's obviously a pretty awful form of voter suppression. So uh, <laughs> I'm glad to see that come to an end. Not to mention, I, I personally might not be terrified uh, to cast a vote there or think I was going to get shot. But a lot of people would Absolutely. be and they would it would not be unreasonable. Yeah, yeah. that's that's intimidation. Yeah, that, that, that is, is voter that intimidation. That is very weird. It's just a weird thing. All right. We'll leave that there. Our friend Ted Rawl, political cartoonist and writer. Make sure you check out, check out Rawl.com, R-A-L-L. Thank you again, Ted Rawl. Uh, time for us to take a short break. We'll be back for the second hour with Fault Lines. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America in the belly of the beast in Washington, D.C., good morning. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for joining us on Rumble 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the D.C. Metro. We are also in Kansas City at 1140 AM, 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM on your radio dial. I am the do-rag conservative, the atomic MAGA host here in studio with the vixen of Veritas, the Thrilla, and Manila Chan. This is the show that dares to go there. This is Fault Lines. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for another hour of Fault Lines. We had Ted Raw on talking about everything. Even Manila, who is feeling some type of way about that blue check mark. The blue check mark. No, the blue check. The blue check mark is one of the two. But good conversation with Ted. Talked about a lot of things. The elections, of course, we're going to continue to talk about it. Tuesday is fastly approaching. Midterms are here. And it seems as if Republicans, that red wave that we weren't talking about in the summer, look like we're going to have that. But we'll get a lot more in the next week all the way up until Tuesday with our midterm election coverage. But let's get to some headline news. In domestic news, U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts temporarily blocked a House committee from assessing former President Donald Trump's tax returns on Tuesday. This is according to the court order. The House Committee on Ways and Means must file a response to the application by November 10th. Twitter's new owner, Elon Musk, confirmed widespread rumors on Tuesday announcing that verified accounts 
will be charged $8 a month to retain their little blue checkmark badges, indicating their authenticity. I will say, from what I understand, as someone who doesn't have a lot of Twitter followers and I don't have a checkmark, you already have to verify your authenticity, verify who you are for the blue checkmarks, but whatever. I mean, this is Elon's thing. He run it. He runs it as he feels. Quoting, Twitter's current lords and peasants system for who has or doesn't have a blue checkmark is bullcrap. He did not say bullcrap. Musk tweeted, power to the people, blue for $8 a month. He added that the price would be adjusted by country according to their nation's purchasing power parity, which is known as the PPP, and we're not talking about the PPP loans. Musk also listed several other features that subscribers to the Blue Service would get, including priority, priority in replies, mentions, and searches, which he said is essential to defeat spam and scam. Subscribers will also get the ability to, to post two posts long video and audio. They would see only half as many ads as before and would gain the ability to bypass paywalls with publishers working, willing to work with us. So maybe this is another money-making opportunity that Musk sees if you, if it's the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post or the New York Times, if they're willing to work with Twitter, they may be able to, I don't know, maybe get some of that $8, get, you know, a dollar or 50 cent off of that $8 a month that these Twitter, the Twitter blue checks are actually paying. Who knows? But I imagine that there's more to come from the new CEO and owner. More news. Several large foreign Twitter investors have received access to confidential information about the social network, possibly including its users' personal data and financial statistics as part of Elon Musk's deal on Twitter acquisition. This is according to the U.S. media. The priority was reportedly given to the Binance, Saudi Arabian, and Qatari funds, which had invested at least $250 million or more in the social platform. The move comes after the U.S. Treasury Department reportedly started examining whether it had a legal ground to conduct a probe into Musk's ties to foreign governments and investors. David DePape the suspect in the attack on Paul Pelosi was arraigned on Tuesday afternoon in San Francisco where he pleaded not guilty to charges of attempted murder, among others. DePape's public defender, Adam Lipson, spoke at a press conference on Tuesday following DePape's court hearing, announcing that DePape had waived his right to a hearing within 10 days. DePape is currently being held without bail. Friday is the setting of the preliminary hearing, Lipsum said, also adding that the bail hearing will probably be set in conjunction with the preliminary hearing at some later date. In international news, Russia will be resuming its participation in the Black Sea Grain Export Agreement after receiving written guarantees from the Ukrainian side not to use humanitarian corridors and ports involved in the grain deal for military operations against Russia, the defense ministry has announced. Quoting, After the Ukrainian terrorist attack against sheep of the Black 
ships of the Black Sea Fleet and civilian vessels involved in sharing the security of the Grain Corridor, the Russian Federation suspended the implementation of the agreement on the export of agricultural products from Ukrainian ports, i.e. the Black Sea Initiative. The MOD said this in a statement on Wednesday, adding, thanks to the participation of the UN and assistance from Turkey, it was possible to obtain the necessary written guarantees from Ukraine on the non-use of the humanitarian corridor and Ukrainian ports listed in the interest of exporting agricultural products for conducting military operations against the Russian Federation. These were sent to the Joint Coordination Center on November 1st, 2022, the ministry added. Moving on over to Israel, the Israeli Central Elections Committee said on Wednesday that, that after processing 62% of the ballots that former, minister, former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud party leads to parliamentary elections. The vote count on Wednesday. Morning showed that the Likud be, that Likud became the largest seat holder in the Knesset with 33 seats, while incumbent Prime Minister Zayir Lepitz Yesh Ati party came in second with 25 seats. The Rush the Religious Zionism Party ranked third with 14. The ultra-Orthodox religious political party Shahs and Defense Minister Benny Gantz National Unity Party received 12 seats each. The United Torah Judaism Religious Conservative Party and Finance Minister Avigdor Lieberman's Yisrael Betenu, which is Israel, our home, party secured six mandates each. Moving on in more international news and his first public statement since the Brazilian presidential elections on Sunday, Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro refused to either explicitly accept or reject the victory of his rival, former President Lula da Silva. Quoting Bolsonaro, I will continue respecting our constitution adding that he would authorize the transition of power to Lula, who narrowly won the Sunday runoff election. Bolsonaro will authorize the transition of power. Quoting again, it's an honor to be the leader of millions of Brazilians who, like myself, believe in economic freedom, religious freedom, free speech, honesty, and the green and yellow colors of our national flag. Bolsonaro said, but he also refused to call Lula the candidate from the left-wing Workers' Party, who was ultimately the victor in the election. Bolsonaro said his white right-wing supporters have the right to demonstrate, but they must be peaceful and not resort to what he called the illegal methods of the left. We were wondering what Bolsonaro would do, and it seems like we have an idea. He's calling for peace protest, but do it peacefully. That sounds familiar. Hmm. Sounds like something a U.S. president may have said that at some point. Maybe Donald Trump. Britain's government has reportedly been testing emergency plans to tackle possible week-long power cuts. As the energy crisis continues to prompt fears of supply shortages throughout the winter, ministers have reportedly drawn up documents which state that in a reasonable works case scenario. 
a reasonable worst case scenario. I don't know if there's a unreasonable version of a worst case scenario, but all sectors such as transport, food and water supply, communications and energy could be severely disrupted for up to a week, according to the official sensitive plan cited by British British media outlets should there be lengthy blackouts Britain's ministers would prioritize delivering food and water and providing shelter to the young and elderly as well as those caring with caring responsibilities in line with the confidential plan codenamed program Yarrow a series of exercises have purportedly been carried out recently involving government departments and councils across the country in more international news, one of the five commissioners of the FEC, which is the Federal Communications Committee, the U.S. federal agency responsible for regulating radio, television, satellite, and cable communications, has touched down in Taiwan for an official visit. In a statement put out on Wednesday, the American Institute in Taiwan, the U.S.'s de facto embassy in Taipei, announced that the FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr had arrived on the island to discuss a range of issues, including telecommunications and cybersecurity, with the visit running from today through Friday, November 2, 2nd through the 4th. Quoting the commissioner, given my position at the FCC, I look forward in particular to deepening the collabor collaboration with Taiwan and sharing views on network resiliency, cyber, and telecom issues that are vital to our shared security interests, Carr said in an interview with U.S. media. And on this day in history, in 1972, the Balfour Declaration proclaimed support for a Jewish state in Palestine. And in 1932, 1930, the coronation of Ross Tafari Mekonnen as Hel Selassie I, which was the 225th emperor of Ethiopian Salmonite dynasty. One of these days, we're going to have to get our producer in to explain why the Ethiopians or Jamaicans and maybe love the Ethiopian Emperor? Maybe Jamaicans love the Ethiopian emperor? Yeah, he told us before. Like, that's why I said our producers are going to have to come back and explain that one. But if you're wondering, is that where the whole idea of Rastafari? Yes, there is a huge connection there. Who knew? Who knew? And in 1949, the Netherlands recognizes its former colony Indonesia as a sovereign state. And in 1966, the Cuban Adjustment Act comes into force allowing 123,000 Cubans the opportunity to apply for permanent residence in the U.S. These are your headlines for Wednesday Hump Day. November 2nd, you are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Hey, hey. Hey, hey. It is hump day. It is hump day. It felt like hump day. It, okay. it did. It did. And well, how how is it? I mean, you have, you've now three days. I mean, are you? I'm tired already. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just, it's just adjusting. Adjusting back to the super early mornings. Yes. Um, but I can survive. You can survive. I'm a trooper. Okay. But it's, it's, I don't know about 
how to I can I can manage my own schedule only to a degree because I have a tiny tyrant at home mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. dictates my life yeah, as soon as I leave here. That's how it works. And and surprisingly, we're gonna talk about it, of course, with Jamal in the nine o'clock hour, but Bolsonaro, he seems to kind of be okay for now. Well, I think he for saw now. he saw what happened with Trump. And I think as much as he was labeled Trump of the Tropics. I think Bolsonaro. Oh my goodness, Trump of the tropics. He just didn't want to go down that path. He didn't want to see a J6. Um, mm-hmm. He didn't want this kind of scrutiny, mm-hmm. I think. And you know what? It seems like. And good for him. Yes. Like, for no, reading no the violence. tea leaves. Yes. Yeah. Let's not, let's not do that. Especially since there were apparently already, I think, what, over 100 protests. With truckers. And right. Truckers have been making a lot of noise this From year. From Canada all the way down to Brazil. I guess so. <laughs> truckers have been making a lot of noise. Um, and some of it now, the new noise with the truckers is uh, the diesel shortage, which mm. I think we'll be discussing uh, in, right after this break because we're going to be bringing in uh, an important new guest. Her name is Kareen Kanaisel. She was the former foreign minister of Austria. Yeah, very excited to speak with her. She's waiting. She's up on deck. She's coming up next uh, after this break. So we'll be talking with Ms. Corinne Kneisel right after this, right here on Fault Lines Radio Sputnik. Don't miss it. We'll be right back. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I am Manila Chan, along with the atomic MAGA, Malik Abdul. Uh, we're holding to get our next guest on the line, but this will be her first time with us. Yes. So I'm excited to pick her brain because it's not often you get to talk to a former foreign minister. Yes. Of a whole country. A real country. I like a real country. A this real is country. not make-believe. <laughs> right. It's not like, it's not a place you've never heard of. Austria. Right. Where Arnold Schwarzenegger is from. My former governor. Can you believe that? I mean, remember yeah, California? Did you forget? Right. He was Austrian. Yeah. He was, he's an Austrian native. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think when he won Mr. Olympia, he was still an Austrian citizen. He was. He was. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, obviously he... Moved to California, became a big movie store, movie star, and became and governor. Eventual governor, and then he went as a Republican. Yes, he won as a Republican. Probably the only type who could win as a Republican. He's a Hollywood Republican, yeah. so and, it's very different. Well, you know Reagan, Hollywood Republican. <laughs> That's <laughs> was, the only Republican that can win. So in the California. only ones who can win are those who are in. You know, okay, I got it, Hollywood. Yeah, it's. I mean, because it's not. It's not. I would say California Republicans, at least. Back then, the the we'll specifically say back then the Hollywood Republicans are not necessarily cut from the same cloth as I don't know, say Ben Sass, who by the way is Nebraska going going down to Florida to become president of a university, right? So, yeah. or you know, he's he's not a Josh Hawley. Well, or, look, I, I knew that they, I knew that California Republicans were a little different um, when I went to a women's for Trump event here in D.C. at the now former Trump Hotel. 
Oh, is it changed already? Yeah. They, what is it? The Waldorf Astoria. It's the Waldorf now? The Waldorf Astoria. Oh. Yeah. So they they sold it. Um, <laughs> now the Waldorf Astoria owns it. And I think they've even, well, not I think, they've even changed the name and everything on it. So it's officially now the Waldorf Astoria. It's actually a very, I don't know if you've ever, it's a beautiful hotel. Yes, it have, used to be the old post office. Yes. I went there when it was the Trump Hotel. So if you had seen what the hotel looked like when it was the old, well, when it was the old post office, no, it I've basically never, looked yeah, like when inside. If you can imagine Union Station, oh. the courtyard, like the food court that was downstairs. Oh no, kidding! Like it was an old. That's what it was. It was like a, a just oh. an old courtyard full of you know Eateries fast food and, restaurants oh. and stuff like that. It was. It is. So the first time I walked in the Trump Hotel, I was in awe. It because was beautiful. They kept some of the remaining in, I don't know if you, so the on the railings or the whatever. The beams on top. On top. Yep. So that was part of the original. Um, oh, yeah, ho- yeah. Because I it's heard, a historic property. Right, because you can't destroy right. historic uh, yeah. pieces of property like that. So I, I know that they revived some of the right. existing beams and mm-hmm. columns in there. It mm-hmm. was beautiful. Yeah. I mean, you know, love Trump or hate Trump, he does make a beautiful hotel. Yeah, it, it, it was, was a beautiful. It's a, beautiful it's place. a great but property. I, didn't, I did not appreciate the eighteen dollar drinks. Oh my goodness, it was overpriced. It was way that was Even one of the problems. DC. That was one of the problems that it had, and and the food didn't necessarily match up with the cost. Like it was really expensive. Very. Like, and even for drinks, like but, come on now, but bro. you know. Even though I was there for like a hap- a happy hour, it was still like sixteen dollars a drink. Yeah. And I, being the reporter that I am, I just I couldn't help but ask. I had to ask the staff individually, whether it was the doorman or whoever. I asked them the same questions to the staff. Have you ever met Mr. Trump or any of the Trump family? How were you treated here? Are you paid well? And resounding. Yes, from all of them. So they were in there a lot. Well, I mean, it's the Trump Hotel. Yeah, but, um, the Iv- Trump family was there. Ivanka was there Hands a lot. On. Laura was there a lot. Don was yeah. there. Eric That's was there. That's what they said. That's Trump. what the staff told me. You would know when Trump was coming in because there's a certain level of security well, yes. that they... Yes. But the family regularly dined at the Trump Hotel, like regularly. That's what they said, that the Trumps, oh, that they're, they're very nice to the mm-hmm. staff is what the staff told me. I was surprised. I was shocked well, to you know, hear th- this. Think about who Trump was before he became president. Hung out with rappers, Oprah Winfrey, <laughs> Bill and Hillary Clinton went to his wedding. I know. So he Which had, one? Which wedding? <laughs> the one with Melania, the, oh, okay. the, the current one. Um, but if you think of the reputation that Donald Trump had before he became president, you know, he was a brash Bronx, New York, wealthy kind of businessman and that everybody kind of wanted to be around. The guy flew around on his own plane with Trump name emblazoned on on the side and was able to convince the American people. I am like you. Right. Can you imagine? He was not that. We talked yesterday about the drinking beer, the whole drinking. Trump was not that I'm going to drink beer. He doesn't drink. He didn't play into because politicians, we typically like those who we can drink a beer with. The beer pole. Remember Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election gurgling oh. uh, beer in the bar? Barf, gross. Did, yeah, so she or was— like Elizabeth Warren, you right, know, live streaming, trying to, open, trying to open a bottle oh, of beer. give me a break. But Donald Trump did not do that. 
He right. didn't try to not be rich because that's typically what it was. Right. They trend. They tried to well, kind of downplay their both, wealth. You know, showing his excessive wealth, but as well as talking like a commoner, and apparently that resonated with the staff at the yes. at the now defunct Trump Hotel DC. But the staff actually, I didn't get one person say a bad thing. It about the Trumps. It I doesn't was, surprise me. I was surprised. Look at Donald, how Donald Trump, whether you like him or not, look at how Donald Trump, um, just look at his kids, you know. And when I say his kids, you may not like what their current politics are, but in the scheme of a, whether he's a billion, for me, Trump is rich. So whether right. he's a billionaire Whatever, or a $700,000 there, that's rich. just rich, You're rich to me. But there are kids of wealthy, privileged, especially white, um, f- families who go in a very different direction than Donald Trump's kids. They stayed yes. with the business. They haven't been involved. You no know, drama. they haven't been in jail. No drugs. No drama. No drugs. No, no drama. Yeah. You have a dad who That's doesn't a problem, drink. Usually with rich kids. I mean, right. look at Hunter Biden. This is, and even though he wasn't, well, he was privileged. Maybe not necessarily had a rich father well, until he became, but definitely privileged. I didn't come from any means. So when you get to that level yeah. where you have vacation homes, to me, and I would say to most Americans, Hunter Biden grew up a rich kid. Yeah. Yeah. He was, I mean, I like privilege, but either way, I mean, there, so there are many examples of kids of wealthy people who go down the wrong path. Oh, of course. You know, or embarrass yeah. their families or things like that. Right. The Trump kids, the Trump kids have, not, have not done that. They followed their, their, they joined the business. The family business. They're all, you know, educated. They are very prim and proper for the most part. I don't like that the Trump boys go oh big gosh. game hunting. <laughs> I don't like that. You don't that. like that part. Yeah. That's, okay. That's, to me, one of the things that stand out. Like, okay. I'm not... You're not, not a big game hunter. No. Gotcha. They're, I mean, I saw photos of them big game hunting in Africa. Yeah, they do it and big. They, ugh, and it was just appalling but to me. But they are, but for all intents and purposes, they seem to have been good kids. So it's not surprising that people, and I know people who know them, mm. who speak very highly of them. I do too. Who speak, especially um, their mom, Ivana. They speak the late, ve- yeah, the late, late um, Ivana, Ivana Trump. Trump. They speak very well of her. So, yeah. I mean, I've I think, heard the same thing. I think that's an exciting thing, but I mean, we it, it that's a great thing. But I can't wait to have the conversation with the foreign minister. Hopefully we're able to get her because you know, just to be able to talk to someone as you can imagine she has a wealth oh, of sure. information about, you know. And from what I understand, she was a a college professor. Oh, so that's so, even better. She's an academic. Right. So, so, so this she's a smarty pants. Right, right. And so that's good to have somebody to just be able and to she analyze has you know, a government uh, resume as well. Right, right. To couple with the academia. So mm-hmm. that's, you know, and that's, and that's not, that's, that's not, not always, I was going to say, that's not a common combination because yeah, it's usually Elizabeth either Warren. or. I just mentioned. And she's rare. Like, but even, because she wasn't a, she was a, just a professor, she's right? She's a professor. Yeah, she was a professor who eventually, um, and, and she was a professor, professor. And I don't mean a professor. Because, you know, that couple of years that Barack Obama was an adjunct professor, right, people different. try to say, oh, you know, he's a constitutional lawyer. It's like, bro, not really. Not quite. She was actually Elizabeth a Warren was an actual yeah, professor. She was a teacher. So. And, and I think she and I think for in Elizabeth Warren's case, that factors 
a lot into her, how she presents herself, her analysis of things is kind of, she gets very granular and analytical in an academic sort of way. But that's also what makes her unlikable. Yes, that that is the flip Nobody side Nobody wants that. to be talked down to like a college professor does. Right, which was a part of the problem that Barack Obama had because when he gets in his moments of this professorial, you know, um, I'm, I'm so smart, listen to me, I have some great point to make, that kind of, you know, I'm smarter than you. I, yeah, nobody likes that. Which that is, came off. He didn't run that way, but when he became POTUS, then the professorial side kind of took over. And I think that really took away from his legacy of likability. Yes. Because, because it was like, um, no, I'm a know-it-all. He, he came off as a snot. Mm-hmm. He came and, off snotty. Well, hey, look, look at what Barack Obama is doing now. And I know people are giving him props for saying Barack Obama is speaking the truth about what's happening in the Democratic Party as he's out there campaigning. He's campaigning for them. Yeah, but I think that Barack Obama, this is more self-indulgence on Barack Obama's part. I think he wants to have people say, listen to Barack Obama. Because when Barack Obama, when when in the 2016 election, um, there was no Barack Obama talking about tone it down. In the 2020 election, Barack Obama was not telling his Democratic Party to tone it down. Right now, he's saying, well, the political climate in America and all of this, and I'm like, well, bro, I mean, that whole thing that Michelle talked about, the first former first lady, when they go low, you go, when they go high. When they go low, we go high. Yeah. That was never true. And she was literally saying this on a stage where people were going very low. So it wasn't even a real, like, statement anyway. Yeah, but Malik, are any of these politicians that we have, are they any, any of them real? I mean, these, it, uh, I, I, it sounds weird, like an oxymoron to say, because they're a political elite class, right? The mm-hmm. fact that they're politicians makes them elite already. Yeah, and especially however, federal members. However... They are this elite class, whatever their background is, right? They've now become an elite class because, you know, by by way of, by means of being a politician, a congresswoman, congressman, whatever, mm-hmm. you're elite. Yes. But they're unimpressive, the ones that we have. Completely unimpressive. Because they get out there and they fumble and stumble and can't answer questions about, well, if you, when you vote to send boatloads of money to Ukraine... And then we are, we here, stateside, Mm -hmm. who you're supposed to represent, are suffering from effectively double-digit inflation that we're seeing, you know, at the grocery store, at the gas pump. You have no answer for me. Yeah, they're out of touch. You have no answer for me. When they get heckled at town halls like AOC, she has no answer for these people. And then she starts dancing. Like, she was dancing in such a condescending way. And it reminds me of when uh, AOC, I don't know if you remember, when she went down, I don't know, she was in South Carolina or somewhere, and she found her Tammy Wynette Southern accent. No! Oh, my goodness. I will, I'll have to pull oh, that up one day. It. Oh, it. I mean, and she went full-fledged Tammy Wynette. Paul, Southern? No, she went Wait, Paula. Wait, AOC. She went, I won't even say Tammy Wynette. She went Paula Dean. No. I, I, I'm going to pull, I'll pull it up one day. It was the most ridiculous thing. But I think our politicians are going to get a wake up call this election cycle 
um, with the numbers that it seems like Republicans are going to do. But, you know, even if we just win the House and not the Senate, I think this is going to be a wake-up call. People like Stacey Abrams, like the stuff that she's doing down there in Georgia, going after law enforcement, I think that the Democratic Party will have to trek a new norm in 2024 because the things that they were able to run on you know, racism, systemic racism, the threat of white domestic terrorism, voter rights. And uh, I don't think that those things will be as prominent in 2024, especially if now I imagine that our economy will be doing better in 2024. But if it's not, I don't think so. I think we're going to be in the throes of a major huge oh, I economic hope not. meltdown. Oh, I hope not. That's even though, my, you know, even sorry to poo poo on your I, Wednesday. I, I'm I'm hoping on the one side, you know, politically, I hope that we don't. But <laughs> because I know people, you know, who are out there struggling and, you know, I'm hoping that we're not because it won't that that will be bad for the not just, of course, politics, but it would be bad for the country if two years from now we've worsened into, because right now they're not calling it a recession. No, this is the tip of the iceberg, I Mm. believe. I I believe we're going to be deep in economic crisis um, by this time next year. And 2024, we're going to be hurting. And whoever the next POTUS or whoever's going to be on the ticket, that's what they're going to be faced with. Well, you know, so economists, so economists are actually saying even about the last, what, the 2.6 number, the GDP number that came out, um, that when you look at that core number, which I think was about 0.1%, what economists are saying, because of government spending fueled maybe about 70 or 80% um, of what was happening on the economic front, that government spending actually fueled a lot of that, they're expecting that in the next quarter— Uh, what will happen is, is that it will start, that number, that 2.6 numbers will definitely go down. The 2.6% is that we're going to, we're not out of it. As the Biden administration is going out there saying, you know, hey, look at what our numbers are now. Economists are saying this is just kind of an anomaly in what we're seeing because we already had two previous quarters of negative growth. So they're expecting that negative growth after this quarter because of the government spending um, they're expecting, and with the Republican Congress, um, they're expecting those numbers to actually tick right back down. So, well, yeah, I mean, you 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 may be right. I think I think it'll improve mm-hmm. when. But here's the thing. But to what extent? But here, a slight improvement, like if you if you break your arm in five places, that's awful, right? <laughs> but if you break your arm in two places. You still got a broken arm. Right. The arm is still broken. So I feel like that's kind of where we're we're going to be faced with after next week mm. when Republicans, I do believe, will will take power um, over there on the Hill. But I do believe we're still going to be in a, a major problem, especially in the way of media and how they are going to attack. We're going to go back to what we saw in 2016, 17, 18, where the media was... We'll take Jim Acosta on CNN, for example, attack dog at President Trump for no other reason other than to to bring attention to himself because he dropped a book after that. Um, But the media is going to go back on the attack on the right. And because there are Republicans who are not afraid and have not withdrawn their statements about supporting Ukraine, Mm -hmm. they're a small handful, but there are some talking about, wait a minute, 
Haven't we sent them enough money? Not because we hate Ukraine or whatever, because I think we've sent them enough. And those discussions are going on now. And, and the media, guess how the media is right. going to respond to those, as the growing voices that say enough boatloads of money being shipped to Ukraine without checks and balances on it, enough. Guess how the media is going to frame all of those Republicans? 24-7 in the media stream. As pro-Russian? As Putin puppets, <laughs> yeah. Russian propagandists, everything, you know, they're going to throw everything at the wall. They should have labeled the squad that because the right. squad is the one who did that, <laughs> wrote okay. that letter. Okay, it sounds like we just got our our guest on the line. We've been waiting to talk with her because, like we said, we don't usually get the opportunity to speak with somebody who's both an academic and a former foreign minister. So with that, let's bring in our next guest. And I, I hope she'll correct me if I'm pronouncing her name improperly. But I believe it's Karin Kneisel. And she was, she is an Austrian diplomat, a journalist, independent politician. She served as the foreign minister uh, in Austria from 2017 to 2019. She's an expert on the Middle East and was a university lecturer before uh, working in government. So, Corinne, thank you so much for joining us. Corinne, are you there? Madam Foreign Minister. <laughs> <laughs> I know she's, okay. she's overseas. Get her. She's overseas. So I heard, I heard something about her. Yeah, I ago. did hear something. So there was a lag. She's overseas. So, so I did hear sure. something in our ears. So we're probably just some, some technical Technical problems going on here, but we'll work. We'll work our way through it. And, yeah, she has some expertise. And, and, and in just gas so our episode. our audience know, no, she is not trying to avoid us. She's not trying to avoid us. There this are, is just some technical there are technical issues yes, that happen yes. pretty frequently. And as we we saw on Rumble too, like Rumble's been very sketchy. I was and on I, it early. I, I thought it Rumble. was me, and I no, said, no, no, "Wait no. a minute," because when I logged on, I was like, "Well, why aren't we live?" And then there was nothing. And then now when I logged in, I kind of saw that it's kind of it's going It's been glitchy. Now. Yeah, yeah. It's been a little glitchy on Rumble. and There's just technical issues. And with the FCC guy going to Taiwan, let me tell you. So do you, do you, throttling, think, do you think France is behind this? France is, <laughs> since I they want know. to Since they, they want to kick us they off. They want to de-platform Sputnik <laughs> and RT. Um, no, because the Rumble, the Rumble CEO, the founder is standing like, by no, bro. free like, speech. He's like, I'll just deplatform France. Like, if you really want something to happen, how about we just dis- like, deplatform so you? You don't so want to see. So you won't have access to it. You don't want to see Russian. I don't even media? know what the what the rationale Here. on their part of of like come out. Why come out with that statement? Like, is 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 it ba- is he is the CEO based in France or something? No, the CEO's in Canada. Which you know, I don't know if he's in. Quebec, or I, I don't know, but um, the, C, the Rumble is a Canadian product. So wait a minute. So it's so, not even... I don't know. Yeah, he's not even American. He's Canadian. Um, Rumble is a Canadian product. So, and it's young, and it's seen explosive growth. Well, those over the people past over there in Macron land should be focusing on what's happening with their parliament, whether or not Macron is going to continue to bypass the lower legislature to get his stuff passed because he doesn't have a governing enough of a governing majority. He should they should be focusing on what's France happening needs in to France. Not worry about media. <laughs> France needs to be worried about keeping the lights on. It's energy water, prices. Keeping yeah. water coming through the pipes because they're, they're are they going to have to cut down wood for coal, they for, are. for heat. They're yeah. fire. They kept their, they, unlike the Germans, have kept their nuclear plants um, going mm. 
or at least operable. Mm-hmm, whereas mm-hmm. Germany shut them all down and had to basically boop, 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 hit buttons and try to restart the whole thing. I, mm-hmm. I imagine Homer Simpson in there. Yeah. <laughs> Because he worked at the nuclear power plant. Oh, he sure did. He sure did. With Mr. I can't think of it. Mr. Burns. Mr. Burns. Mr. Mr. Burns. Um, But France kept that going as a backup plan. And I guess, you know, I don't know how great this is going to be for the environment. But if the Europeans are burning coal, firewood, all these other fossil fuels that are way worse Mm -hmm. than nat gas. Nat gas, again, fossil fuel has how you get it through fracking is is bad for the environment, but the actual emissions of it is less than obviously burning coal. So are you, are you, where are you with fracking? Because I know some people are just adamantly opposed. And are you, where are you I, with fracking? Well, for, okay. So for the U.S., in our case, we are the distant third, by the way, distant third uh, of nat, gla- nat gas supply. In the world. The okay. first one is Russia. Russia has 25% of the known reserves of natural gas. Russia? Yeah. Number one, by leaps and bounds, 25% of the no, the world's known supply is in Russia. If you did, I imagine that if you did a poll, especially here in the U.S., on who is the largest, on that very question. Natural gas. Turning no on your one, stove. No one would probably choose Russia. No one would think that, but it's actually yeah. Russia. Um, and I believe Qatar is the second, which is random because they're a tiny little, right, but they right, have right. tons of, tons of nat gas. And then us in the U.S. by a far, 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 far distant third. Very, very far when you wow. compare it to Russia. Far distant third. But we have, that said, we have a lot of natural gas, right? Um, and of all the fossil fuels, natural gas in terms of emissions is the, quote, safest or cleanest. Hmm. of the fossil fuels because hmm. the emissions are, are, are better that way. But how you get it, all the nat gas fracking that happened, the hoopla around it about 10, 12 years ago, apparently they have made changes to some of the chemicals and how they, you know, how they pressurize down deep into the shale and whatever to release the gas. Um, so apparently in the past decade, there's, a, there's been a lot of advances in how we can retrieve it. So I'm not an expert in this field, but oh, gee, because I was—it was a question I was going to ask you. So I don't know if I should ask now. <laughs> I'm not—I'm not an expert, but I've covered it quite a bit, um, especially you know, like ten years ago when it was a huge, huge issue. The the U.S. because of the fracking dilemma, because of environmental issues, EPA stuff that Trump repealed, Biden went back and put in in place to protect to stop the fracking, how it contaminates water and. So we're fracking in places that are are inhabited by people. Gotcha. Whereas Russia has so much land. I mean, five time zones, right? That they it have doesn't so much touch, land. like, They don't people, need to bother humanity. humans. Yeah, they don't, they're not bothering humans to get, mm. right. There's not like, you know, a native family perched outside of a fracking, you know, a well, right? So that's not happening in Russia. That's why you're not, it's not a big hoopla out there in Russia because they're not contaminating people's water and, you know, you're not lighting your sink your sink water, faucet water on so fire. So what is, do you know, and this is the question I was going to ask because I actually don't know the answer. I should, I should, but I don't. But that's why I have you, the walking <laughs> encyclopedia. Because if Manila doesn't know, then it means that I need to really do some work. Um, but what Thank is, you. so crude oil, it, they say it's not as, what is, what is, what is, because people 
talk about, because they were saying in relation to the Keystone pipeline. pipeline that it was producing crude oil. Well, crude, crude oil just What's means, just, what is that? Before it becomes gasoline or Vaseline that you put on your cracked hands or mm-hmm. whatever. So it's unrefined, right? It's just the dirty, the dirty gold that comes From out the of, gra- oh, comes okay, out of the ground. Okay, okay, that's, okay. that's considered crude. Gotcha. And then it gets refined and distilled in certain different ways, including into diesel, um, which we're short on as well here in the U.S., which is part of what's going to be the economic crash that I'm I'm seeing. Because weren't trend you talking the other day about the the possibility that how diesel we're out of diesel? We're yeah, weren't, we it was our, just Monday. We you 50, were just talking yeah, about yeah. that. We have fifty percent supply right now on the East Coast. I haven't looked onto the West Coast yet, or down south, like we're in Texas and stuff, where the the diesel would be coming in mm-hmm. at the ports. But here on the East Coast, the ports are usually along like um, Virginia Beach, North Carolina. They come that way, and diesel gets shipped out, dispersed that way, okay. right? Like, so mid-Atlantic, and it goes north and south down I-95. Mm. So that's the diesel supply. We're about 50%. And part of that problem is Russia's also a supplier of oil, a major, I don't know if they're, I believe they're third in crude in the mm. world. Um, so they're a major supplier in the world. What the U.S. was doing at the for many years, and this is where I find you know, what we're doing here in the States, very suspect, is that the U.S., because we're a third nat gas, right? I'm drifting away from crude, and I'll get back to this. I have a point to this. So we also have a lot of reserves in, in, in that dirty crude as well. We have our own. We're sitting on a lot. We just don't want to tap into our stuff. We, I believe the foreign policy of the U.S. is to drain everybody else's resources, and we'll save ours for last, right? If we need to dig and and you know, frack or whatever to, to extract our natural resources, we're going to do that last. We're going to use everybody else's first, especially because other people have more than us. So we're going to use theirs first. We're going to use Saudi Arabia's first. We're going to use the UAE's crude first. We're going to use Venezuela's crude first. We're not going to use ours. Same with nat gas. We were importing Russian natural gas here and we could turn it to liquefied natural gas. We could turn it, we use it for regular natural gas. Um, because we're buying it way cheap. I'm making up dollars right now, but let's say it was like $3 per cubic meter. So it's much cheaper than us fracking to get it, right? So it's cheaper to just get buy it from Russia. So Joe Biden comes in, and why you're going to see your heating bills increase, if you haven't already, people that live in cold areas like Minnesota, um, Montana, it's already snowing in Montana. Um, they have summer for like two days, I think. And then it goes back to snow. People are already seeing their Robbie. Nat gas. Where's Robbie? Robbie. I uh, that's right. Robbie hadn't called in. I that's need right. To reach out to Robbie. But they're seeing prices spike, right? The nat gas spike. That's because we have cut off relations to even buying natural gas from Russia, even nat gas. So now here's our dilemma of do we go back to fracking to get natural gas? Um, he, Biden had to open up the strategic oil reserve, again, tied to Russia, because we're the ones choosing not to do business with them. Russia didn't say, oh, you're causing a proxy war. I'm not going to sell to you. Russia never said that. And what I, what we I, said to them, we don't, we don't want your nasty crude and we don't want your nasty natural gas for cheap, even though we've enjoyed that. And guess what we were doing with the natural gas? We were trying to sell 
the natural gas. We were trying to be the middleman to sell to Germany. Oh, get And we were anti-Nord Stream pipeline. We were, yeah. So that's really, the if you really— And Russia p- supplied about 40% of Germany's— Yes, um, natural gas. Natural gas. Yes. So there's a whole, you know, this is real deep inside baseball, but that's really what happened with America's nat gas and crude is that because we're trying to protest and be angry at Russia, that it's not that they didn't want to sell to us. It's that Biden chose... Right, this was a decision. Yes, this was a decision to say, we don't want Russia's natural gas and we don't want Russia's crude. Because we're going to sanction them. We're going to show them. Mm -hmm. We just won't buy from them. And then... In December, their economy is going to tank. Yes. Meanwhile, meanwhile, the, the Russian ruble is <laughs> way up, strongest it's ever been. It's doing since, very well since the Soviet Union fell. But you know, nobody's talking about that. Janet Yellen is putting price caps on Russian gas to show them some Rus- Russian crude to mm-hmm. show them who's getting shown. And, we and are. OPEC, OPEC Plus is saying, nah, bruh. MBS is like, <laughs> Yo, Vladimir, what are we doing here? Oh, you. You want to cut one million? No, no, no. I got you. I got you. Watch this. Joe, we're going to cut two million per day. Right. Vladimir Putin's uh, suggestion was maybe we tamp down production by a million. MBS went, nah, bro. Watch this. Two million. I, I honestly, I didn't know. The, um, well, actually, until I started coming here, and I probably wouldn't have known it if I did not or didn't tune in. I didn't know as far as just how vast Russia is and even its natural gas resources. Like, I didn't know. Russia's full of resources. And I didn't realize I was looking in the Rumble and I Googled it and I saw Russia has 11 time zones. 11? I thought it was Ele- only five. It's 11. Oh Russia has an astonishing oh 11 God. time zone stretching across its borders. I hope they participate in the <laughs> no time change thing because I can't keep track already, like I said. But so here's the astounding thing. When you hear President Biden specifically and, and his closest allies in Congress, when they specifically say the quiet part out loud and they say the focus is regime change in Moscow, What's the real reason? What's the real reason? Is it about natural resources? Hmm. Is that the real reason? Because it's easier in their mind to kick Vladimir Putin out of office, coup him, change that to a a U.S.-friendly, you know, not only does that maintain U.S. hegemony, but if you install a leader that's friendly to the U.S., well, guess what? They're going to give us sweetheart deals on their natural resources. So we don't have to tap into ours, number one, because it's politically ugly because you're going to have people demonstrating, people, people get killed at these things. You know, like, like um, for the Keystone stuff, people die. There are things that happen. People die from contamination. People, so it's, it's politically bad to, to tap into our own resources only if you need to. It's easier to go coup somebody and then make friendly with the new leader that you install and take their natural resources for cheap. So to your point about um, getting it when we need it. So I didn't realize until listening to people involved, you know, people much smarter than me, which I typically do. Um, they were talking about the str- using the strategic petroleum reserve. That is something that is typically used in emergencies. And how Biden's use of it here, we're not 
in emergency. This was because it was a decision that Biden made that God is here and it's not some global emergency where he should be tapping into it. But I wonder, um, you know, you were mentioning about the economy and that you think that, you know, it's going to we're going to have some issues. Hit the well, skids. Think about the the how how all of that works, connecting the dots between the issues that we're going to have with diesel but then also the supply, ch- how that impacts the supply chain. Because we need diesel fuel. Well, of course. The truckers but- need to bring our food. The truckers bring the clothes that you put on your back, the socks on your feet. Yeah. So think about how that affects just on uh, impacts on down the supply chain with issues. Whether Because if it's a smaller pool, then the prices are going to go up for diesel. So it's uh, a very obvious and logical Conclusion, like you don't have to have, you don't have to be Professor Richard Wolff to understand yes. economics that like when it's that simple, right? If we don't have the the diesel here to give to the truckers so they can do their job, our economy starts slowly crumbling. And if the shelves are bare, right, when the shelves um, start looking sad and empty, like, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, The Walking Dead when they're trying to... <laughs> You know, the shelves have just been all sweeped up. Right. Everybody's eating every crumb. What, what That's we what it's saw, like. what we saw at the beginning of the pandemic. Because remember, at the beginning of the pandemic in 2020, that's when we all experienced a supply chain crisis, which meant that we were going into stores. We could not buy hand sanitizer. We could not buy paper towels. We could not buy toilet tissue. We could not buy water. Like many of the basic things that we just exposed it. Like who would think that no one would ever be able to walk into a store if you don't get it today? You can go and get it tomorrow, or you can get it on Thursday. We take it for granted. We take it for granted. And another thing, and Jamal and I were talking about it a lot, too, on the difference in how the U.S. responds to um, these things as opposed to places around the world. So we know Brussels, Prague, Paris, many other places, these people, their citizens were taken to the streets not to protest just what was happening, their government's involvement or disagreeing with their government's involvement in Ukraine or the position that they were taking. They were protesting in the street about the economic conditions yes. in their countries. Yes. The only equil- equivalent that we could come up with here, something similar, where people were protesting like, look, this stuff is some whilst was Occupy Wall Street. Which I think was phony baloney too. But it didn't, you know, it it that was the only thing that I can think of where we took to the streets to protest yes. what was happening in our country. We typically protest. You can get us in the streets to protest race. Well, we you can BLM get us to protest. Too. Well, that's what I'm saying, race. So yeah. things around race and maybe like abortion, things like that. Will you can get people to protest in the streets for that, but when it comes to are the economic conditions of the country, and I make the comparison to what's happening in other places, they weren't just protesting their government's position on Ukraine. They yeah. were protesting fuel prices. You know, we don't do that here. Like, we don't protest. Yeah, the Europeans tend to protest more than yeah, us. Yeah, we don't. And, and we have all of these First Amendment protections right. that many other places don't, but we will not get out in the streets like you would think. Well, what's happening now with inflation, crime, and, you know, you would think that we would be out. Well, I always say we're a very complacent yes. Xbox society. Yes. We are not, you know, the, what 
the 13 colonies were. <laughs> we're not them. No, we're not. We're not them. We're not the revolutionaries. This That is not Ameri- current, present-day American society. We're keyboard, you know, keyboard right. warriors. And we're you, Xbox warriors. Yes. And Nobody's you mentioned um, you mentioned Jim Acosta earlier, and I'm wondering now that Elon Musk has bought Twitter, what the landscape will be or the decisions that journalists would make because they were basically um, people made their names on social media with very provocative and well, I'm speaking specifically of Twitter being provocative and nasty, saying horrible things, so just saying like. Horrible things. If you think of someone like a Julianne Reed or many of these other people who just just say outright nasty things online, how how is that moderated in an Elon Musk world? Because I don't know. Should it be moderated? I, I, I don't think that it should. I but I think should. there should be par- I think there should be parrot. I mean, if you shouldn't. I mean, no threats to life. That's about it. Right. That's but not it. No threats of violence. If some of if that. some crazy right wing person wants to come up, you know, put some conspiracy theory online, and I say so be it. Yeah, so be it. In the same way, and it was such a vital, um, huge mistake that Twitter was making. YouTube made them. You know, when they were deplatforming people around, you know, the discussion around COVID. You know, I'm yes. hoping that Twitter is not that in Elon Musk. In Elon Musk's version world, of it, where yeah. people were literally. Deplat, well, de- suspended, censored, or for talking about stuff that we now know to be true, to be real, just like the DHS same thing communicate with uh, Bajaya Gade, yes, the former legal chief. The at various we know Twitter. that these things are now true, and you guys were making decisions to censor um, this information. It and, and hey. We know that the FBI was talking to Mark Mark Zuckerberg, um, Zuckerberg about Facebook. Hey, bro, that whole. Well, see, the thing is, some someone like me who is, you know, like they would consider me a fringe reporter because by virtue of working for the Russians, I'm a fringe reporter. I'm a propagandist. I'm whatever. But I have tweeted in the past about like America buying Russian uh, nat gas. I have tweeted about because these are stories I've worked on, so I tweet about it. But. They have suppressed me because they don't want people to know these stories mm-hmm. because it's inside baseball of how our government actually works. Because usually, usually how it is is, and you know this because you've worked in government, on the surface, they act like a lot of bravado and they hate XYZ country, right? ABC, whatever. They hate that country. But behind closed doors, they're like, but we're still buying product. A product, B product. That's C how I them, felt right? when I when I realized, even though it's not one of the, I think Canada is the largest um, importer of like. Oh, I was surprised that as much as the United States, this kind of um, relationship that we have with Russia, where we're all taught to hate Russia, but you're still doing business with Russia. Yes, but that's usually the way it <laughs> like, is. This is like the like first... stop all of that performing that you're doing well, on right TV, now. They're bro. not performing. That's the that's the scary thing. That is the scary thing between the U.S. and Russia right now is that the, it, it's a proxy war and they're not even pretending that it's not a proxy war anymore. Anymore. There are American troops on the ground in nearby, I don't know if it's, I think it's Romania maybe or maybe Bulgaria, but they're like fully oh, I saw dressed that. up soldier, you know, they're in their uniforms. And that's not NATO, no NATO troops. It's not, it's American soldiers in the vicinity in Ukraine or near Ukraine 
And that, like I said, the proxy war is escalating and they're not even hiding it. And this is the first time that, you know, any sort of hot proxy war is affecting the economic side massively and and overtly on a big scale overtly they're overtly saying we're at a proxy war with russia and we are overtly fighting them on the economic front as well so that's dangerous what a bummer i'm sorry we didn't get to um we didn't couldn't connect because i heard the Mm -hmm. i heard it too in my ear we'll we'll get her don't worry she'll she'll be on she'll be on uh she's promised us that she will come on uh corinne kanaisel Um, the former foreign minister at Austria. Uh, Sit tight. We'll be back with a few more guests in the final hour on Fault Lines here on Radio Sputnik. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America in the belly of the beast in Washington, D.C. Good morning. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Thank you all out there in the rumble world for tuning in. If you are on radio here in the D.C. metro, we're at 105.5 FM, 1390 AM. We're also in Kansas City at 1140 AM, 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM on that radio dial. I am the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan, along with the original do-rag conservative Atomic MAGA, Malik Abdul. This is the show that dares to go there. This is Fault Lines. Man, I was so I ready know, to talk last to Karine. Hour. Karine. How, and did you, and you're going to read it in the headlines, but this, the Russia's um, getting back into the grain export agreement. Yeah. Yeah, you're going to read it. The, the grain deal. I wanted to ask her about yeah, that. Yeah, me too. Um, because it, it yesterday it was off. Yesterday it was off. Today it was on. Today it was on. So it's like, whoa, that was like, I got whiplash from Mm -hmm, that. mm -hmm. Because we were just talking about how they found, you know, like weapons being smuggled through grain transport. Yep. So it's like, wait a minute, how are you going to make sure that doesn't happen? And I didn't even realize how it impacted places like Africa. I didn't even realize that. Well, what I hated the most with the whole grain working up its way to the actual grain deal that was partially brokered by Turkey and the UN um, was that the American mainstream media totally misrepresented Ukraine's role of grain in the world. According to the United Nations, Ukraine is only a 10% supplier of grain to the world. And they were calling Ukraine the breadbasket of the world. That is not true. It's actually Russia. Russia's like close to, I think, a quarter, maybe a third of all the grain exports in the whole entire world. It's actually Russia. So, again, yeah, Ukraine, only 10% supplier of grain to the world. And other people produce grain, too. You know, so it's not, you know, 10% is quite a lot if you think about the amount Mm -hmm. of grain in the world. Um, That's actually a lot. But to represent them as the breadbasket of the world was a complete falsehood and lie by American media. And that's just not true. It was it was there for a purpose. It's there to gin up more support for, oh, we got to save them because they feed the world. They feed 10% of the world. Um, Eight billion people. Just saying. But yeah, let's, let's head over to the headlines. We'll get the details uh, out of that right here. Let's start with uh, domestic stuff. 
The U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts has temporarily issued a block to a House committee that is wishing to access former President Donald Trump's tax returns. He said, quote, It is ordered that the mandate of the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, case number 21-5289, is hereby stayed pending further order of the undersigned or of the court. The House Committee on Ways and Means has to file a response to that by November 10th, or else it just stays. The stay stays. And we're talking a lot about Twitter, obviously, in the last few days. The new owner, Elon Musk, has confirmed rumors by tweeting about verified accounts. Those are the people with the blue check marks, myself included. He's going to charge us $8 a month to retain those blue checkmark badges. Uh, He said this, quote, Twitter's current lords and peasants system for who has or doesn't have a blue checkmark is bull expletive. Power to the people, blue, $8 a month, adding that the price would be adjusted by country according to the nation's purchasing power parity, or triple P, if you look at it at an economic standpoint. And Mr. Musk also listed several other features that subscribers to the Blue Service would get, uh, including priority replies, mentions, searches, And he says this is essential to defeat spam and scam. He also said, as a perk to the subscribers, you'll get the ability to post long video and long audio. And he says for publishers that are willing to work with Twitter, the Twitter Blue subscribers will be able to bypass paywalls uh, with some of those publishers. So we'll see. I'll give it a shot for $8 a month for a little bit and, I don't know, see what benefits there are. Otherwise, I, I I don't know. Why would I pay you to create content for you? I'm You're paying me. You're not paying me to work. I'm paying you to for the privilege of creating you content. I don't know. That doesn't make sense. But we'll see. We'll see. Maybe it's a really cool thing. We'll see. All right. Several large foreign Twitter investors have also received access to confidential information about the social network, possibly including its users' personal data and financial statistics as part of Elon Musk's deal to acquire Twitter. Now, this priority was reportedly given to Binance, Saudi Arabia, and Qatari funds, which have invested at least, the baseline is 250 million bucks or more into Twitter. So the move comes after the U.S. Treasury Department reportedly started examining whether it had legal ground to conduct a probe into Elon's ties to foreign governments and investors. Then David DePape, the suspect who allegedly attacked Mr. Paul Pelosi, was arraigned on Tuesday afternoon over in San Francisco where he pleaded not guilty to charges of attempted murder, among several others. DePape has a public defender called Adam Lipson. He gave a short press conference following the court hearing, announcing that Mr. DePape had waived his right to a 10-day hearing. He says, quote, Mr. DePape is currently being held without bail. Friday is the setting of the preliminary hearing. 
The bail hearing will probably be set in conjunction with the preliminary hearing at some later date. Then to international news, Russia is resuming participation in the Black Sea Grain Export Agreement after receiving written guarantees. Not sure how good those guarantees will be, but receiving written guarantees from Ukraine to not use the humanitarian corridor and those ports involved in the grain deal for military operations against Russia. The MOD says this, after a Ukrainian terrorist act against ships of the Black Sea Fleet and civilian vessels involved in ensuring the security of the grain corridor, the Russian Federation suspended the implementation of the agreement on the export of agricultural products from Ukrainian ports, i.e. the Black Sea Initiative. Thanks to the participation of the UN and assistance from Turkey, it was possible to obtain the necessary written guarantees from Ukraine on the non-use of the humanitarian corridor and Ukrainian ports listed in the interest of exporting agricultural products or conducting military operations against the Russian Federation. These were sent to the Joint Coordination Center on November 1, 2022, according to the MOD statement. Then the Israeli Central Elections Committee said on Wednesday they processed 62% of the ballots in Israel, and it looks like the former PM, Bibi Benjamin Netanyahu, his Likud party is leading the way in parliamentary elections, so likely paving a way for a Bibi comeback as PM. The vote count on Wednesday morning shows that Likud is the largest seat winner in the Knesset with 33 seats. Incumbent Prime Minister Yair Lapid's Yesh Atid party came in second with 25 seats. The Religious Zionism Party ranked third with 14. The ultra-Orthodox Religious Political Party, Shas, and Defense Minister Benny Gantz's National Unity Party party received just 12 votes, or 12 seats, rather, each. United Torah, Judaism, Religious Conservative Party, and Finance Minister Avigdor Lieberman's Yisrael Betenu, or Israel Our Home Party, they secured six seats apiece. Then in his first public statement since the runoff elections on Sunday, Brazil's current president, Jair Bolsonaro, has refused to neither fully explicitly accept nor reject the victory of his rival, also former president, Lula da Silva. He says, quote, I will continue respecting our constitution. And he says that he'll authorize the transition of power to Lula, who just narrowly beat him by within two points, within the margin of error. He said, It's an honor to be the leader of millions of Brazilians who, like myself, believe in economic freedom, religious freedom, free speech, honesty, and the green and yellow colors of our national flag. However, Bolsonaro refused to actually pick up the phone and call Lula from the left-wing workers' party. Bolsonaro said his right-wing supporters have the right to demonstrate, but that they must be peaceful and not resort to what he called illegal methods of the left. Because, you know, no one on the right does anything illegal. It's just the left. But all right, he's a little bit salty. A little bit salty there, Bolsonaro. Then Britain's government has reportedly been testing emergency plans to tackle possible week-long power outages 
Though as the energy crisis continues to prompt fears of supply shortages through the winter, ministers in the UK have reportedly drawn up documents which state that in, quote, a reasonable worst-case scenario, re- let that sink in, reasonable worst-case scenario, that all sectors such as transport, food and water supply, communications, and energy could be severely disrupted for up to a week. So according to the, they're calling it official sensitive plans cited by British media outlets, should there be lengthy blackouts, Britain's ministers will prioritize delivering food and water, providing shelter to both the young and old, as well as those who have caring responsibilities. So those who are caretakers of probably the infirmed. Uh, So in line with this confidential plan, the codenamed Program Yarrow, a series of exercises have reportedly been carried out recently involving government departments and councils across the country. Then one in five commissioners of the Federal Communications Commissions, uh, the U.S. federal agency that's responsible for regulating radio, television, satellite, cable comms, the internet, all of that, the FCC. One of those officials has touched down in Taiwan for an official visit in a statement put out Wednesday by the American Institute in Taiwan. That's America's de facto embassy in Taipei. They announced that the FCC commissioner, Brendan Carr, has arrived on the island to discuss a range of topics, including telecommunications and cybersecurity. The visit's going to go from November 2 to November 4. And Mr. Carr gave an interview to U.S. media where he said, quote, given my position at the FCC, I look forward in particular to deepening the collaboration with Taiwan and sharing views on network resiliency, cyber, and telecom issues that are vital to our shared security interests. Then this day in history, back in 1917, the Balfour Declaration proclaims support for a Jewish state in Palestine. In 1930, the coronation of Rastafari Makonnen as Haile Selassie I, the 225th emperor of the Ethiopian Salmanic dynasty. Back in 1949, the Netherlands recognizes its former colony, Indonesia, as a sovereign state. And in 1966, the Cuban Adjustment Act comes into force, allowing some 123,000 Cubans the opportunity to apply for permanent residence here in the United States. And that will do it for your headlines this Wednesday, hump day, November 2nd. You're listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. All right, let's take a, a quick break. We've been doing a lot of talking. Yes, in lieu of, we have. Uh, gaps in communication. I had to get some water. Telecom. Maybe it's FCC. <laughs> I, I, I'm saying France. You're saying it's, France? It's France. I'm going to keep it more local. I'm going to go with the FCC because they're just down the street. I think they were blocking our phone call. Hey, I'm, well, you know, we had a, I, oh yeah, you were you here? No, you weren't here when we had the blackout, the when, no, because it was Jamal. Yeah, so we came in one day and no power. Like, none. It none. was dark. When I say no power, I mean the, the locks. Wait, so were you guys on, on air? So the locks on the doors had been de 
because it's electronic. Right, right, right. So you could just you, walk. Oh, they were open? Yes. So, oh, the, so it didn't lock at all. The door to Instead the building. staying locked. So it wasn't just the door to the building. It oh, was the even wow. getting on the elevator. Everything was wide open. You didn't need anything. And so Lath. Wow. <laughs> you know, Lath was blaming Zelensky. <laughs> he thought it was Zelensky strike. But on, it was dark. And, but we eventually, um, I think we didn't go on for the 7 o'clock hour. But by the 8 o'clock hour, things had. Oh. They got the, the power, power had up. come back on. But yeah. I did not know that. No, that's the first I heard of that. Yep. I was largely pretty scarce on the my people, one month the sabbatical. The people were watching. They were watching us. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, I was largely pretty scarce. I mean, I was up and about, but I was making the most of my 30 days. Well, but, the good thing is that we get to talk to Jamal. We're going to have to check and see if he's... If he if, remembers what happened. Yeah, and if he's ready to go, because I don't know if we have him on the yeah. line yet, but we're going to be talking to him shortly. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's take a quick break. Uh, when we return, the next person we'll be talking to is John Kiriakou, who is out there in Israel covering those elections. Uh, as we know, BB setting the stage for a comeback. All right. When we return, John Kiriakou, you're listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I am Manila Chan, joined with Malik Abdul. We are bringing in our good friend, John Kiriakou, the co-host of Political Misfits, also right here on Radio Sputnik. He is out on assignment in, I believe, I believe John said he's in Jerusalem, right? I think he's in Jerusalem, uh, but he's checking out. Yeah, there you are. Checking out the Israeli elections. Um, John, first up, did you see a big turnout? Was there a last-minute bit of excitement to usher Bibi's party back into power? You know what? It was actually the low turnout that uh, that brought Bibi back to power. We said yesterday, if you recall, that that really this election depended on turnout among Israeli Arabs, the Palestinians who are Israeli citizens. Uh, that tends to that tends to fall around the forty-five percent level, and among Israeli Jews, turnout tends to fall around 65%. So the the analysts here said that if the Arabs turned out at above 45%, Bibi would lose. If they turned out at under 45%, he would win. And it turns out that they that they voted at around and this the numbers aren't done yet. They've counted 85% of the vote, but they they came in at around 39%. Ooh. And so the numbers today show that not only will Benjamin Netanyahu be the next prime minister of Israel, but it looks like he's going to have what is, by Israeli standards, a comfortable working majority. They're looking right now at 65 seats. You need 61 to govern. 65 seats in the 120-seat Knesset for Likud and its allied parties. Now, Likud itself, Netanyahu's party, appears to have won a, a very solid 30 to 32 seats. That's versus 24 seats in the last Knesset. So the bottom line is Netanyahu is going to be prime minister again. Yeah, the comeback kid for real. And he's under indictment, he and his wife. And it just seemed like, I mean, he really is the Teflon Don, that guy. And which time? Is this his fourth or? Well, yeah, well, how many times is this? Fourth or fifth? John, third, third time, fourth time? Well, well, if you're counting non um, 
Well, altogether, he was prime minister in the 90s. He was prime minister for a stretch of 13 years again in the in the aughts and the and the teens. So yeah, this would be depending on how you count, this would be either the third time or the fifth time because he was also prime minister in several short-lived uh, governments. Right, right, right. And then he got indicted. Uh, John, wh- why do yeah, you Yeah, and and nobody seems to care. And actually that was my that was going to be my question to you in light of his history. Um, but why do you think that the turnout was so low? The Arabs don't believe that they get anything for their support. They have nothing to show for it. You remember in the in the last government, the, the a combination of Arab parties actually joined the government, right? So they were part of the working majority. But violence continued against Palestinians. Uh, settlements continued to be built. They They ended up with literally nothing to show for it. And they said, well, if we're going to be second-class citizens, then why would we why would we take part in our own destruction? And so they just decided it's not worth voting. I mean, it just seems like I, it's so hard for me to, to gather the right words of, to even encapsulate how the, the, Arab, the Arab population in Israel must feel after election, after election. And first of all, this is, I, what, number, number five in four years? Or do I have those numbers flip-flopped? Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. How must they feel that not only is their election fatigue, but through the course of history since, you know, 1957, I think it was, right, when the, when the state of Israel was established, that— uh, 47. 47, 40, 40, 48. 48 is when the war was. So in the, the establishment of this whole state, there's really been nothing promising— for them since then. So, I mean, at what point do you just give up, right? Like, what? Yeah, see, that's the thing. Um, they've, they've never gotten anything. You know, the, no, no Israeli government from 1948 to the present has, has ever thrown them a bone. There's nothing. I, I mentioned yesterday that the two-state two solution is dead. The only people talking about the two-state solution are the Americans. That's it. it there's no hope. But as a talking point, as a talking point, not a real, not a real thing. Exactly. It's just a talking point. It's just not going to happen. You know, another thing that I noticed too, Manila, um, in, in my, what is it now, four days here, is you talk to Palestinians in Jerusalem and, and they're, they're palpably afraid, right? They're, they, everything turns into a whisper. They just don't like talking about this stuff because they're afraid that an iron fist is going to come down on their heads. And it's really surprising to me. Now you go deeper into the West Bank, and and it's different. Um, there there was an attack on a on a soldier today that resulted then in a counterattack on a group of Palestinian uh, young people. And there's there's fighting in West Bank all the time. But here in Jerusalem, those Israeli Arabs, those Arabs who are Israeli citizens and can vote, are just cowed and almost silent. You know what, John, one of the things that Netanyahu has done, he's kind of pledged to build on the achievement of the Abraham Accords, um, of course, with the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain. And that, yes, opened the door for a possible normalization of relations with other Arab countries. But what do you make up? What are your thoughts on um, some of the conversation that's happening around his relationship 
with what they consider like the far, well, at least is what's considered the far right, like religious Zionism party. And I think the guy's Itamar Ben Givar, Ben Giver. I think that's his name. Did I say that right? <laughs> Did uh, I say yeah. that right? Manila, Manila's looking at me. Ben Gavir. Ben Gavir. Ben Gavir, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. But what do you make of that, him, um, how he's going to have to navigate that relationship? Yeah, this is a tough one. Uh, and it has multiple uh, parts to it. First of all, there's a pet peeve that I have, uh, especially with the American media, where they call the Abraham Accords a peace treaty, a peace treaty between um, between Israel and the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain on the other side. The UAE and Bahrain have never been at war with Israel, ever. They never participated in you know, the, the war of independence for Israel in the, uh, six day war in any subsequent war. This, there, this is something that the Trump administration just created out of, out of thin air. There, there was no peace deal. Then, yeah, uh, the, the big, the big question mark is Saudi Arabia. Yeah. I, I spent a good bit of my life living in Saudi Arabia, working on Saudi Arabia. I can tell you that the Saudis will never, ever normalize relations with Israel under any circumstances. And it's because the Saudi king, whoever he happens to be at any given time, is the custodian of the two holy mosques, right? And to, to then normalize relations with, with a country that many Muslims believe is you know, the, the creation of Satan himself, it would delegitimize the Saudi royal family. Now, with that said, I think the Saudis are perfectly happy to work with the Israelis especially on military and security issues behind the scenes. I think that's what Netanyahu is going to be focusing on because you know that whoever is president of the United States is going to support that policy as well. Yeah, no matter who who's there. Yeah, no matter who's leading the Knesset, John, I mean, the U.S. is always going to back Israel. That's just, that is, it, it's not a matter of who the president, who is in the Oval Office. It's just, it is the U.S. foreign policy. People have a hard time uh, making that distinction between, you know, a certain administration's policy versus the U.S. foreign policy. It actually belongs to the country. Like, it's just, it's there. And right? it's, it's typically consistent across it is, administrations. It's baked into the cake. It is baked, Israel is baked into this cake. And the, the thing, the thing that concerns me, John, with Bibi is we've seen how the rhetoric, I mean, because we've seen him, like we've had him be the PM. So we know, we know he's what he's about. He's a known about. entity to us. Yeah. Yeah, we know what he's about. And we know how he feels about Iran and the rhetoric that he spews about Iran. The scary thing with, with the political climate now between what's happening in Ukraine, um, the, the ramped up tensions from the U.S. foreign policy about Iran, Russia, and China. Now you have Bibi coming back. MBS, who has kind of a you know, he's kind of walking a thin line there, but one of their joint joint enemies would be Iran. And that's what's, that's scary to me. And, and I'll tell you something too, Manila. Uh, during the George W. Bush administration, we came within days of war with Iran only because Netanyahu was demanding it. You know, Netanyahu has had very long and close relations with, with prominent neocons across, uh, the, across the decades you know, going back to the late 1980s when he was ambassador to the United States. And he almost talked us into attacking Iran in, uh, in the, during the George W. Bush administration. And then when Barack Obama became president, Obama was having none of it. And that's why relations 
soured so severely. You might remember that during the Obama administration, Netanyahu came to the United States, not even on an official visit, he just came, which is a crazy protocol violation, never met with anybody at the White House, but yet addressed a joint session of Congress. Unprecedented slap in the face to Barack Obama. And the reason he did that is because Obama would not attack Iran. That's what Netanyahu's all about, is Iran. Yes, and that's, given the political climate everywhere around that region, that is terrifying to me because, I mean, John, the the Democrat Party, for all intents and purposes, has now become the, the party of war. Bibi, Bibi loves war. We know that. We, we know. We know. And he loves buying arms and he loves, we know his foreign policy. We know. And because of his rubbing elbows and being buddy-buddy with a lot of American politicians on the Hill, that, to me, creates the perfect storm for goading the U.S. into having not only a war with China over Taiwan, a war with Iran, and the not-so-secret proxy war that we're in right now with Russia, with Ukraine as the theater. I mean, this could be a dangerous escalation for the world with Benjamin Netanyahu coming back to power. And couple that with this this report yesterday that Saudi Arabia fears an imminent attack from Iran in the eastern province, which is heavily Shia, um, Shia Muslim, and is the oil uh, center for the Saudi economy. Uh, both Saudi Arabia and the United States announced that there was this active threat from the Iranians. And then a member of the Iranian leadership said, yeah, we might attack because the Saudis have blanket television coverage of these demonstrations here, and they're doing it to destabilize us. Well, this would be just a, a, a gift to Benjamin Netanyahu if the Iranians either were to attack Saudi Arabia or the Saudis and the Americans were to uh, launch a preemptive attack on Iran. Just imagine. And you know what? I apologize. Malik asked a question and I sort of skipped over it. Malik, you mentioned these ultra-Orthodox and Zionist parties. Um, much to my surprise, Netanyahu and Likud did not need to cobble together, you know, five, six, seven different little parties. These Zionist parties and ultra-Orthodox parties did so well yesterday at the expense of the left and at the expense of the Arabs, that Likud only has to join with three other parties to make this government at 65 seats. So you've got this, uh, you know, this racist, homophobic, anti-Zionist terrorist or anti, uh, not anti-Zionist, anti-Muslim uh, terrorist who's elected to parliament with five other seats. At least he's not going to be a member of the government because the other ultra-Orthodox and Zionist parties did so incredibly well. I don't think we've ever seen a Knesset like this that, that's this far, this extremely right-wing. That is a tough pill to swallow <laughs> on the hump day. But I think, I think, we, uh, I think we saw it coming, and I, I just feel like with every you know, election that Israel has, it pushes the Middle East closer to another um, big, hot war just waiting to happen. So, and well, and, and let's add one thing that, you know, Yair Lapid just two weeks ago negotiated a, a maritime border for the very first time ever with Lebanon that would allow Lebanon to 
participate at least on a limited basis in the natural gas uh, lifting just south and east of Cyprus, okay? This is historic. There's never been a maritime border between Israel and Lebanon. They're in a perpetual state of war. Well, yesterday, Netanyahu said that if he's elected prime minister, he'll tear up that agreement and go back to the status quo of having no maritime border with Lebanon. Why? What's the downside? I, I don't understand what the what the policy might be. Like, why would you want to invite war with your northern neighbor? My only answer was, we know Bibi loves war. And war makes a huge profit for a lot of American interests. And, and of course, the Israelis have a lot of um, intelligence capabilities and cyber capabilities. So it's really great for certain industries, for certain countries. So, um, but, you know, uh, we'll let history be the judge of that. Uh, but John Kiriakou, thank you so much for uh, checking this stuff out. I, I'm, I'm glad that you're actually safe because we're hearing that there's some violence in East, East Jerusalem. I believe. Yeah, East Jerusalem. I tell you, the cops all night long. All you hear is sirens and and horns blowing, and yeah, it's it's active over there today. All right, stay, stay safe. safe. John Kiriakou, co-host of Political Misfits, out in Jerusalem in Israel, covering the elections for us. Thank you, John. All right, sit tight. When we come back, we're going to bring in Jamal Thomas. JT is out covering uh, bikini seat. No elections. Elections in Brazil for us. We'll be right back. You're listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I am Manila Chan along with Malik Abdul. Time now to go to the co-host of Fault Lines, JT, Jamal Thomas, out there covering the Brazilian elections, not the landslide that we had projected, uh, the world had projected uh, several months back. But nonetheless, Lula eked out a victory. Bolsonaro sort of not really conceding, but sort of. JT, fill us in. Yes. So he comes out, he makes a speech. Finally, after 44 hours, Bolsonaro finally comes out and gives a speech. Now. The speech, two minutes long, two minutes long, oh. doesn't concede by any stretch of the imagination, doesn't tell the truckers to go home. But there are elements of the speech that are utterly fascinating. And by the way, before we get to the speech, I heard you guys converse, having a conversation with John. Yesterday, last night, after I did all of the news and everything else, I went to the movies. After the movies, I went to see Black Adam. Um, I was greatly annoyed at that movie, very upset with that movie. JT, you know I don't know what movies are out there. I don't I don't know what's out there. I don't know what Black Adam well, Black is. Black Adam is in States too. It's a superhero movie with oh, okay. um, The Rock. But they have this group called the Justice Society that invades the country. He claims themselves the good guys, despite the fact that they have a military organization. Meaning, that country is under military dictatorship. Oh. The Rock accidentally gets rid of it the Justice Society comes in in order to reinstall the military dictatorship and they're screaming that we're the justice guy, we're the good guys, and all this other stuff. I was so angry at that movie. I even fell asleep at the very end of it. <laughs> I go to a steakhouse at the end of it, it's like 12 at night, take it in the cab. The guy, my cab driver, is an Israeli. He had been living here for 50 years. Fifth, and five, him zero? and I got into a good argument. Yeah, 5 0. Wow. Older guy. Oh, okay. Him and I got into an argument over Israeli politics. Well, we don't want you arguing in Brazil. 
Oh, I love it. Please do not fight with the locals in Brazil tomorrow. Well, no, I don't bring up, I don't have a fight with the elections in Brazil. Like, meaning, from the standpoint of um, um, Lula or for that matter, Bolsonaro, I'm a fly on the wall. If I'm meeting somebody, he didn't want to talk about Brazil, though. He wanted to talk about Israel, which let's have a conversation about that. So we started having this conversation about the Knesset, air parties in the Knesset. And I asked him, I said, hey, it looks like then Yahoo is trying to get back in power. He said, that would be a great thing. I said, really? That would be a great thing? He says, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, and then he starts making a point that says, you know, Arabs in Israel have equal rights. They're just like everybody else. And I said, well, I said, dude, do you honestly believe that? I said, what about the Knesset? I said, you have Arab parties. That would go, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the Lapid government brought them in. That's a horrible thing. Why is it a horrible thing if they have equal rights in the country itself? And then he goes into this explanation about how Arabs want to be in Israel and everything else. I said, yeah, but you just made the point of saying they have no political power in the country. Why is that a bad thing for you to bring these guys into the government itself? Great conversation with the guy. It was not an argument. It was a conversation, but it was a good-hearted conversation. I even gave him a huge tip after the fact. Okay, good. I'm glad. I was worried you're picking fights. The conversation with you and John. Because, Jamal, I already know if you are out there picking fights, you know what they're going to, you know what American media, if they found out you started a fight, they're going to say the the Russian disinformation guy is out there sowing, you know, discord and discontent in Brazil after the elections. No, it's not like that. It's always good hearted. When I say argument, I don't mean it as a negative. I know a lot of people consider argument as a negative. I mean it as a conversation. It's just a good back and forth in regards to having a conversation, pick the guy's brain. Yeah, he's representative of the country. And so when John is saying, you know, this is the most right wing government, that government is indicative of the people of that country. I've been to Israel twice. That has always been that point of view every time I've been there. Yeah, I remember you told me. Jamal, question. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Let me um, explain the Bolsonaro speech because the speech was fascinating. Bolsonaro is in silent for 44 hours, finally breaks the silence. He's flanked by ministers, allies, I think more than a dozen of them. And he gives a two minute speech and basically leaves. So he says, quote, I mean, like I said, didn't concede, didn't tell the truckers to go home, didn't do any of that. And all things being equal, he's trying, I suspect, to keep his political hopes alive and to keep Bolsonaroism alive and not setting himself on fire right now, especially when he's politically isolated at this moment. But he says, quote, I'll continue to follow the Constitution. It is an honor being the leader of a million of Brazilians. He defended his record specifically on the issue of COVID or the pandemic and specifically on the issue of the consequences of Russian-Ukraine um, war. He pushed back on people calling him a fascist or basically anti-democratic. He also noted, he says, quote, our robust representation in Congress shows the strength of our values, God, nation, family, and freedom. And when people say words like that, I am always confused. I have no idea what those words mean. None. Never have an idea what those words mean. Those words are emotional and symbolic and have nothing to do with real world phenomena in regards to what does it mean in practice. I hate when people say that. It's like saying rules-based order. It's something that people basically use in order to kind of give this feeling about stuff without necessarily having a reality to it. Republican, Democrat, fascist, socialist, communist, Satanist can all say the exact same thing. Doesn't mean a thing. He also noted our robust represent right there. He also says to the protesters right here, he says, quote, peaceful protests would always be welcome, but our means cannot be those of the left, which always harm people, invading property and preventing the right to live. Unquote. Those protesters are literally blocking food, energy, vaccines, 
people trying to get dialysis, people trying to get to airports and planes. You had reports last night of people walking in the dark on the highway with their luggage trying to get to the airport before their flight leaves. So, yeah, good luck with that one. Um, he also had a two-hour meeting with the Supreme Court justices just before he basically came out. And the justice, Supreme Court justice, uh, what is it, Louise Edson Fachin, he said the conservative leader said, quote, it is over, so let's look ahead, unquote. He also, um, there were a few other justices, and these, this was more anonymous because these people didn't necessarily say what they were, so this might include um, the initial judge that I mentioned. He said, during a cordial and respectful meeting, Bolsonaro recognized the results and said that the Brazilian people write a freedom movement. That's basically what the court told him. I mean, basically, look, people should be able to go from point A to point B. According to two of the justices that were part of the meeting, they said, quote, it cleared the air without a doubt. It seemed to turn the page, unquote. One justice who requested anonymity also said, quote, the message was game over, unquote. The other judge said he didn't criticize the electoral system or the courts. So basically, in a two-hour meeting behind the scenes, he basically accepted the results of the race and basically said, look, we're done. Let's move forward. Oh, he also told his contact team to basically, you know, make inroads with Lula, basically to help with the transition. Um, Chief of Staff Ciro Noguera and his vice president, Hamilton Mora, have begun already to make contact with the Lula team to discuss the transition. They noted that that was going to take place on Thursday. And so he has called it quits for all intents and purposes. Yeah, he's called it quits. Good for him. Lame duck President Bolsonaro is on his way out. Jamal, what do you what do you make of his you know, seeming to concede? You know, the yesterday we were wondering. Um, well, actually, over the weekend, um, up until today, well, until yesterday, people were wondering what is it that Bolsonaro would do. There was a lot of speculation based on past statements that he has made, talking about only God will be able to remove him from office. But wh- how significant is his? We'll call it a concession. I mean. You know, phrase it as you want, but we'll call it a concession. How significant is that in the context of what you were talking about with the protest, even though there weren't like mass protests around? But how significant is that in tamping down any potential like further protest or anything like that? Do you think it has any weight at all or they just would have stopped altogether? So those protests have swelled to what, 20 states? Mm-hmm. And because they were truckers, they were basically blocking highways. So they were cutting off basically the ability for people to get from point A to point B, which also means the ability for people to get food, gas, et cetera. I mean, in some locations, 95% of the location ran out of gas. You had these long lines um, in regards to people trying to get you know, fuel. Prices spiked almost immediately because of it. Um, you had, they were um, concerned that shopping shelves would go empty. In some locations, I mean, it was bad. I mean, like, because even though it wasn't necessarily an upswell of the entirety of the population, they need to be. Truckers, part of his main coalition, had the ability to basically choke off the ability for the country to go. It's almost like a blood clot. You know, it's like what happens if you get a small clot um, in a certain part of your body, depending upon where it is, you can die of a stroke. And the truckers have been able to do this once before in the past, where they were able to basically stall and bring the country to basically a halt. So the biggest concern was that, meaning how far were those protests were actually going to go. Um, up until the reporting, there were 300 and something that were basically removed. Apparently, there's still around 200. According to last night, let's go this way, because I got to be honest, this morning, there hasn't been much reporting on it. It's almost as if, all right, Bolsonaro quit. 
turn the page. Let's just move on, which is super weird when you think about it. But all things being equal, that, that question is unclear. I put it that way. Because, no, he didn't necessarily concede. No, he didn't necessarily tell the people to go to home. But he didn't necessarily give it breath either. Like, so he didn't necessarily say, great job, keep going, keep shutting down. He didn't do that. He basically just said, all right, people should have the right to protest. Just don't do it like the left, et cetera. But that's not really telling those people, go home. <laughs> that's not saying, okay, in the protest. And you have some of those truckers who are basically calling for him to overthrow the government, ignore the results of the election, even go so far as to say, we're going to go to the military to try to get the military to help us out because they're also Bolsonaro and arrow supporters. This morning, I haven't seen any reporting on this, short of saying that the cops were able to get rid of what, 300 or so of the blockades, but still a few remain. But that was last night. So that wasn't something that was being reported for today. That was something that was being reported last night. I haven't seen any reporting at all on the protests today. I suppose, I suppose they're still out there, but I suppose that people lost interest in it. Um, right here. By 8.30 last night, Highway Police said they had removed 419 blockades, but nearly 200 were still in place. But again, that was 8.30 last night. So it's unclear how many of those people are going to keep going. Look, at a certain point, Bolsonaro didn't come out there and tell them, keep going, guys. He didn't say that. And at the point where you see your leader basically concede, what do you do? That's the question, right? You know, you know, it all, yeah, this almost sounds like um, Bolsonaro's response reminds me of Donald Trump's response to, I can't really remember which group that was, but you remember when he said, stand back and stand by um, to, yeah, I, like it wasn't, he did yeah, maybe it was the Proud Boys. Like, he didn't necessarily in... Okay, Oath Keepers, Oath if you, Keepers. If you remember, the Oath Keepers were out there with weapons. Yes. I mean, they those guys had guns in reserve, and they basically were like, their argument in the lawsuit was, we were waiting for Trump. We were waiting for Trump to give us the word one way or the other. Trump had the ability to basically call martial law or something like that. This is what these guys were basically arguing in court, that they basically had weapons, guns, and everything else, and they were ready to come in and help Trump that Trump could basically deputize him as president. I mean, this is the nonsense these guys were talking about. But the difference is, these truckers aren't armed, from my understanding. They're basically just using the trucks to shut down the highway or, or burning tires and stuff like that. I didn't get the feeling that they were out there potentially shooting people. Like, that wasn't the feeling. But do you think if Bolsonaro was more forceful in basically, you know, telling them, okay, stop it. I mean, do you think that they would be receptive to Bolsonaro actually saying that? They probably would get angry at him. Mm. It would definitely suck the oxygen out of it. Because at that point, it's like, okay, you're out there protesting with the notion that you're trying to protect your guy, that you want your guy to come out forceful and back you up in regards to what you're doing. If your guy comes out and doesn't do that, then what is your purpose in being there? Meaning the fact that your guy isn't willing to come out and call for an overthrow of the government, and your guy is basically saying, all right, I'm done calling it quits. Lula won. I need you guys to go home. This looks bad. Look, some of them, just if you think of what it means to demoralize a person, <laughs> that would be it. That would be it. Right there. That would be the demoralizing act. Yeah, I have a hard time believing that these people are going to be able to stay out there at the point where his own guy concedes. But you must understand, from Bolsonaro's point of view, he didn't have a choice, I don't think. I mean, look, from my standpoint and from my analysis of it, Bolsonaro was politically isolated. He might have waited in order to see what happens. Like, are the people going to riot? Are the people going to rise up? I've already put into the country that this is a fraud. Three-fourths of my population believes that. 
Will they burn it down on my interest and for me? It was. It could have been something like that. When he saw that those people didn't do that, when he saw his own political allies came out saying, okay, Lula won, when he saw all of these other governments coming out, including Joe Biden saying this was a free, fair election, Putin came out, Maduro came out, Cuba came out, Rafael Carrera came out of nowhere, even saying that there was the president of Ecuador, um, Pedro from Colombia, all of these people outpouring of support, basically saying congratulations on that free and fair election. Then what is he going to do? When your own people, own people, your own political allies are telling you concede. And they were even telling them behind the scenes, concede. Don't come out and say anything crazy. He had no choice. He was completely and politically isolated. The rub is, just like Donald Trump, if Bolsonaro set himself on fire now, he would have no capacity to basically come back in order to challenge what's taking place. And his language, this notion of a strong showing in Congress, meaning my values or our values is the thing that um, represented in the strong showing in Congress. Well, why is he saying that? He's making a point almost like Trump. Bolsonaroism is installed at that point, meaning it's in a political space. And in the same way that Donald Trump still had his acolytes, in the same way that Donald Trump still controlled the party, it is very possible that Bolsonaro still has that level of gravitas within the context of his political space with meanings. Not setting himself on fire now allows him to come back and basically challenge Lula in the next election. I mean, after all, he only lost by like a little less than 2%. What stops him from doing so? I mean, very, very true. Very true. JT, what about the some weirdness happening on social media between Jair Bolsonaro and the missus? Have you heard anything about that? Like, apparently they unfollowed each other. <laughs> it's like, you lost, and I don't want to deal with a loser. I don't, I don't want to be with you. Hold on with that. I, I had a friend of mine who, um, we, you know, we used to play chess. So we used to be vicious with each other when we play chess, like the trash talking and everything else. And he made the point to the guy. He says, I beat that man so bad his wife didn't even want to ride in the front seat with him. He just sat in the back seat. <laughs> it's, it feels like that, right? It's like, I was only with you while you were president. But now that you're a lame duck, nobody, I'm out. I don't know what went over that. It was just super weird because supposedly they basically uncoupled or, or disconnected themselves on social media. Very weird. Very weird stuff. And he's like, I don't know. He's like, what, a 70-year-old man? And like his wife, I think she's like in her 40s, I think. It's just weird to see a world. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's weird to see grown. Yes, very pretty lady. But it's weird to behave like that when you're a world leader. It is. I don't know what went on. What went on. I don't entirely know what went on with that. I, I got to be honest, I don't know what on, but it is super weird. And she is very young, very attractive. She's what, my age, I guess? I think so, around 40 in our age group. Power is sexy, man. Power is sexy, right? I guess. I mean, look. But like, unfriend my husband. Hillary Clinton, Nancy Pelosi, all of these women with power, I would wager to you that they probably could get a younger man if they want. <laughs> oh, I, oh, JT, I don't. It's like, oh, it's the so thought. powerful. God, it's sexy. Maybe it's my thing. I don't, I don't disagree with Jamal on that one. I think you're right. <laughs> oh, Hillary Clinton with the pool boy? Oh, look, no. I, I think that guys, you know, we're, we're guys. And so we're willing to, hey, we'll, we'll take care of sugar mama. We'll, oh, we'll, my God. Oh. God, she's awful. She walks the whip. Oh, God. Beat me. Beat me, Hillary. Oh. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm joking. Kind of joking. That's like a terrifying thought. Brazil's public prosecutors opened up an election fraud investigation against National Highway Director Silvini Vasquez, staunch Bolsonaro supporter. That was the one who's what is a federal general of the highway police. If you remember, the highway police against 
the TSE, the uh, Alexander Morales, he's the Supreme, Superior Electoral Court, against the ruling of that court, set up roadblocks and basically prevented or inhibited or prevented or outright in some cases stopped people from getting to the polling locations against the will of the court. He also came out, supported Bolsonaro, so there was that. So it's like, yeah, I'm preventing people from doing this. And I'm back in Bolsonaro, meaning there's no doubt in the reason that he is basically doing it. Also, after the fact, you saw federal police basically backing, in some cases, the protesters, this video of it on social media, even though they said they were basically clearing on the thing. The judges basically came out and made the point of threatening him personally, saying, I am going to charge you $20,000 if you don't get rid of those protests over the course of the night and not just charge you with $20,000. I may put you in jail. Meaning they were threatening him with fines, removal from his office and jail itself. They made the point of saying right here, omission right here. It says a majority of the court justices. Now, the major Supreme Court itself, the overall Supreme Court of the land, backed up Alexander de Morales, uh, Mortis, the head of the um, Superior Electoral Court, backed them up completely. And they made the point of saying the majority of the court justices backed a decision which accused the highway police of, quote, omission and inertia, unquote. Failure to comply means the director could be fined up to $20,000 an hour, removed from his seat, and even face arrest. Federal prosecutors in Sao Paulo and Gosha State said they have open investigations into the blockades. He could be going to jail. He could be going to jail. Now, they activated state police because they didn't believe the federal police were basically doing their jobs. The federal police at this point make it a point saying, look, this is everything to do with Bolsonaro. We can't pacify these guys because basically Bolsonaro hasn't basically given a speech. Meaning they were saying it is the president. It is the lame duck president's fault because he hadn't came out and said anything. Well, at this point, he said something. But they're still going to open up an investigation on him because he basically blew off the court. How do you do that? Think about that. The court says, go do X. And the cop, yeah, whatever. I'm not going to do it. I want Bolsonaro to win, so screw it. Well, I mean, it can't be any worse than seeing armed militia dudes guarding ballot boxes in Arizona, right? I mean, so... That is disturbing. And the idea that the the court think that's okay. I mean, that's going back to the 60s, right? Where you have these guys walking around with poll taxes and all this other nonsense. And it's like you have random people inspecting your vote. Think about that. Random people inspecting your vote. The idea that you're going to have guns anywhere near an electoral system is dramatically problematic. It is a threat by definition of these guys walking around with guns. They shouldn't be in bars. They shouldn't be anywhere near political spaces. Any damn sure shouldn't be anywhere near the ballot box where you want people to be able to give a free and fair election. That is a disastrous ruling. I saw that. Wait, did you say that they shouldn't have guns in bars? Well, yeah, alcohol and guns are a bad combo. Oh, well, as a combination. As someone who grew up grew up around guns and guns pretty much everywhere in Mississippi, I, I don't have a problem with um especially most of the time they're concealed anyway. Yeah. So I don't have a problem with guns. And I, I do this is a huge problem. This what's what this thing in Arizona, that is clear yeah. voter intimidation. intimidation. Whether they, whether they had the guns or not. We saw a similar thing in what two thousand I can't remember when it was when those Arizona, Arizona is a, an open carry state. Let's be clear about that. Yeah, so. but I think as we have restrictions around, you can't have like firearms within certain distance of yeah. like schools. Yeah, I think that that similar thing should absolutely apply when we're talking about voting about, because they they call themselves protecting the ballot boxes, but well, that yeah. is clear 
voter intimidation. It's like Trump said he's protecting the oil in Syria. It's nonsense. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're protecting the oil. It's like, no, no you're, you're not. not. You're stealing the oil. There's a difference in those things. Yeah, that is clear like, I mean, intimidation. For the moment. You have a situation where people are going to the polls. I mean, you don't need it. Your vote is supposed to be secret, right? All things people, you're getting exposed, but it's supposed to be secret because you need the anonymity to be able to make that vote without the pressure from the external force of knowing um, of the society itself. Meaning you may make a vote that may be against societal interests, but it's still your vote. And the idea that you're going to have armed guys walking around with this notion of saying, yeah, we're protecting the ballot boxes. That's what we're doing. No, you are creating a situation where you have weapons. You're basically getting rid of, meaning, I'm going to say, you're, you're slicing this notion of people being able to go and vote in a way that is free, fair, without any kind of looming threat of violence. And you know what? You know what, Jamal? Yeah. And to your point about that, I don't want to hear any because per- I'm, I'm against what they're doing down there. But I don't want to hear any person defend this as it being OK, especially if they had a problem with giving water to people standing in lines at the polls. That's like That's such a point. Like you, 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 if you're going to have a problem with giving out water because it may influence a vote. Right. Then. Come on. <laughs> Come on, man. As Joe Biden says. Come on, man. All right, JT, we got the music in our ear and we got Andre saying it's time to go. Uh, Jamal Thomas out there doing uh, bikini surveys and and uh, talking about the elections in Brazil. I'm just kidding, Jamal, giving you a hard time. We're jealous of your travel. Uh, have a good time. Stay safe out there. Thank you all for listening out there on Rumble, out there on Radio Land. Thank you. Thank you, our engineer and our two producers. I am Manila Chan, along with Malik Abdul. We'll be back again. We've made it over the hump. You're listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Have a great day. Fault Lines.